All right, man. Let's hit season three. Let's do it. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose the lights? I burnt my hand and my muffins. Still hasn't fixed your plumbing yet? It's a work in progress. is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recap season three baby we're going downtown the hatch here it's season three. Oh my god mike bloom whose muffins are these whose muffin yeah um i'm so thrilled i'm so excited oh! here we are in season three we're yeah. starting season three should we officially rename the podcast downtown the hatch now that the hatch is r.i.p uh i do think for season three the unofficial uh subtitle downtown the hatch uh here we are uh we're in new otherton the barracks have arrived mm-hmm. Juliet burke has arrived benjamin linus will be named ben in this episode the polar bear cages uh, that dastardly chain that Jack Shepard can't help himself but pull on. Yeah, as, as the others yank his chain the entire episode, fittingly enough. I feel like Mike that this is sort of, it's a, it's a great metaphor for the for the down the hatch exercise, right? Like Lost has been there immovable for at least a decade and counting now, and we just can't help ourselves but pull on this chain to see if we can't unearth new things. But uh, what is the real purpose behind it? Uh, yeah, it honestly does we'll feel know. like if we should turn this into a meme of Jack pulling down on the chain, it could be anything from, you know, uh, time traveling Dave marrying Libby to Michael naming <laughs> Walt after Walt Disney, just like all yeah. the theories that we'll throw out there. And despite the fans being in the form of Juliet being like, what do you think you're doing? We're just consistently hopping up and down, like trying to pull our best Quasimodo realness, trying to, I don't know, bring down the ceiling upon ourselves. Um, I love that Quasimodo realness that we bring to each and every episode of Down 
Hatch, Lost Rewatch Podcast, which on the off chance that you're just starting here with season three, I feel like the season three premiere could be a jumping on point for some people. This is a spoiler-filled podcast. We talk full spoilers about Lost. This is not for the spoiler-free. If this is your first time watching Lost, this is not the podcast for you. We're going to spoil the shit out of it. Uh, so uh, walk away now. Watch the mm-hmm. whole show, then come back. Go uh, run that way. Run that way. Run that way. We're running this way. Uh, we've been running alongside uh, the the great listeners of Down the Hatch, the Hatchlings, for damn close to a year now. Oh, uh, wow. We have spent more close. time podcasting about this than, you know, these people have spent on the island. It's crazy. I mean, at time traveling being involved, they've actually spent decades on the island, but yeah. it's still crazy to imagine. You know, when, when we're done with this, I don't know who will have spent more time on the island, Sawyer or uh, Sawyer logs about three years. I think that Sawyer will probably beat us unless we initiate another rewatch, which we are threatening. Uh, but that is, a, <laughs> that is a long time from now. That's not a thing that we have to cross until more than a year from now with the natural order of things. Here we are. We're at the start of a new season. My hot take on the season two feedback show was that A Tale of Two Cities uh, may be the weakest premiere in Lost history, but season three may be the best season in Lost history. And I wonder how that will hold up under scrutiny. It's a hot take. We will see. Uh, It's been a little while since we've done an episode recap. We had two weeks where we had the season two feedback show. And then we had the season two book club. Uh, we had now have a book club on the show in the form. Yeah, I of guess the, I the guess I was club. no longer in the book club since I was absent from last week's podcast. How was to be move? back in regular form? How was the move, Mike? A work in progress? Um, you know what? I think uh, when I woke up in my bed Thursday morning, it was a bit of a less alarming process than what happened to Sawyer, Kate, and Jack. And I got to say, the accommodations are a bit better, though I'm waiting for Ben Linus to appear and say, like, I just wanted to immerse you in comfort before we send you to whatever dank dungeon I'm going to end up in eventually. I requested that townhouse across the street, but whatever. Uh, no, here we are. Very excited about all of this. We've got some business up front that we want to let everybody know about uh, for the next few weeks of the show because I am actually going to be uh, retreating to a cabin in the woods uh, for uh, oh. a, a period of time. Just don't like- sit in the chair. There might be someone in there. <laughs> uh, so we have to do some some scheduling logistics in that regard. We want to be cards up with everybody so everybody knows where we stand so that you're getting your feedback in. You're getting it in on time for the right shows. So, of course, the best way to get your feedback in, down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. There's also Twitter. I'm at Round Howard. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. And, of course, at postshowrecaps. But that email address is the best. Down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com recaps.com this is the schedule for the next few weeks obviously a tale of two cities it's dropped it's in your feed you're listening to us hello if you're listening to us and the podcast hasn't dropped i'm afraid how is that possible i thought that intercom was broken yeah or at least i thought i could only hear my dad through it yeah i thought so too the glass ballerina season three episode two we will be recording that podcast on july 28th for a july 31st Release, get your feedback in for that show no later than July 26th. The evening of July 26th is when we are going to need that feedback from you. Further instructions is going to mark, I believe, Mike, the very first time in the history of Down the Hatch that we will either that we will miss a Friday. Um, wow. Uh, I, I think that we've we've released podcasts early before. I think that that has mm-hmm, happened, mm-hmm. Uh, but we are going to be a day late. Uh, so your typical Friday morning release is going to be shifted by one day. You will have to await 
further instructions. That podcast is going to be released on August 8th. Get your feedback for that show no later than August 5th. We need that by August 5th. Further instructions coming out August 8th. Because we are going to be a day late on that one, we're going to be a little early for Every Man for Himself, Season 3, Episode 4. Typically, we come out on Fridays. We're going to be coming out smack dab in the middle of the week. For Every Man for Himself, that podcast is going to drop in your feed on August 12th. Get your feedback in no later than August 9th for Every Man for Himself. And then here's one that I'm really, really excited about, Mike. On August 15th, 2020, that's 8.15. 8.15 is going to mark the official, obviously 8.15, a very exciting day if you're a Lost fan anyway, but 8.15, 2020 is the one-year anniversary <gasps> of Down the Hatch. Wow. It's the one-year anniversary of Down the Hatch. So we are going to release a special podcast for you on 8.15, 2020. Uh, it's going to be, uh, we're going to revisit a year of coverage of Down the Hatch. We're going to read and engage in feedback that you sent in. This is a great opportunity for any of those like uh, touchy-feely feedbacks that you got about what Lost means to you, mm-hmm. what having the podcast has meant to you, any funny stories from along the way. Uh, do you have anything that you want to share with us in terms of how this podcast has interacted with your real life that is wacky <laughs> or wild? We want to hear about yeah, I was that. I noticed you didn't typify that with quality of good or bad no, ways the podcast no. has interacted with your life. If it's bad, we'll hear that too. Uh, mm-hmm. As long as the story is told artfully uh, or arstfully, we will, we will read it on the air. Air, but we will have our one-year anniversary special podcast coming your way, uh, coming out on August 15th, 8-15, 2020, to commemorate one year of Down the Hatch. Uh, and that's it. After that, we're back on track. Cost of Living will come out August 21st. Yeah. So so uh, obviously, uh, you know, this is a weird sort of schedule for the next few weeks, but this is a weird batch of episodes in law, so it feels only fitting, right? Yes, it does. It does. So we're going to, we're you know, th- that's a lot of information at the top. We are including it in the show notes as well this week so that you're on schedule. I know people really uh, live and die by uh, a schedule. Uh, many people do. So we want to make sure that we're cards up with everything that is going on as we are working overtime to make sure that season three runs smoothly, if a little bit weirdly. Uh, before we hop in to this episode, I want to take a quick second to thank our sponsors for this episode of Lost Down the Hatch. And support for today's episode comes from Progressive Insurance. Fun fact, Progressive customers qualify for an average of six discounts when they sign up for Progressive Auto Insurance. Discounts for things like enrolling in automatic payments, insuring more than one car, going paperless, and of course, being a safe driver. Plus, customers who bundle their auto with home or add renter's insurance save an average of 12% on their auto. There's so many ways to save when you switch. And once you're a customer with Progressive, you get unmatched claim service with 24-7 support online or by phone. It's no wonder why more than 20 million drivers trust Progressive and why they've recently climbed to the third largest auto insurer in the country. So get a quote online at Progressive.com in as little as five minutes and see how much you could be saving. Auto insurance from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, home and renter's insurance not available in all states, provided and serviced by affiliated and third-party insurers. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. Season three begins with a wild situation, Mike Bloom. <laughs> Season three begins with not only the return of the plane crash of Flight 815, but a new perspective on that plane crash mm-hmm. as we learn that the others are relatively civilized to the point that they're baking <laughs> muffins, they're having book clubs. 
it's it, it's a trip. It's a really, really trippy scene in an episode that I think gets dinged up as just like a, a fine premiere. Um, I don't know if it was the layoff of a couple of weeks of no Lost, uh, you know, actively watching Lost, Mike, but I had such a good time watching this episode. Yeah, this is actually a very comparable episode to me to... Um, man of science man of faith in that it's like okay we remember this episode because of this absolutely bomb opening scene but what do we remember outside of that and i agree in that i was pleasantly surprised with this episode obviously we'll talk about it a couple of hours down the line when we get to the rankings or the ratings but this was an episode where i felt like you know for all the complaints about season three flashbacks being meandering or inessential i actually thought the flashbacks in this particular episode worked really well i think it is definitely a choice to only focus on you know the main three characters that were kidnapped by the others these first three episodes are going to serve as a a bit of like again a redo of the first three episodes of season two where we're going to get you know, this is what happened to Jack and Kate and Sawyer. Next episode is this is what's happened to the boat crew. Then the next episode is this is what happened to everyone who somehow survived the implosion of the hatch with a little bit of less Rashomon thrown in, uh, at least in the first three episodes. But I will say I, w- I was happy with how this episode turned out personally. It's a bit of a smaller episode in scope, and I do wish that that it involved somehow more of the ensemble in a way that Man of Science, Man of Faith did. But at the same time, in concentrating on such a small amount of characters, I feel like they wrought some pretty interesting character moments and also did a really fun job of introducing this brand new, mysterious, scary environment that that we're going to be in residing in for, you know, the next couple months. And not to mention a brand new character. Uh, You know, this is not a Juliet Burke flashback episode, even though the episode does begin in her perspective, much like um, the season two premiere begins in Desmond's perspective. Um, But Juliet is so at the fore of the action here, the fore of the action here in A Tale of Two Cities. And I am I am trying to think of a character debut since like the, the OG eight one five Yep. I was going to say, I was actually coming in here with that take as well. I can't yeah. think of a character that has a better, you could count maybe one of them just for like the met, the, you know, the, the magnetic but persona. Disguised, right. That, you know, he's Henry Gale. He's not Benjamin Linus yet. Juliet Burke shows up as Juliet Burke, yeah. uh, mysterious, enigmatic, dangerous, sad AF. Right. Like all of the things about Juliet, you can read really like if you know her with the context of Lost, you can apply so much of the things that we're going to learn about her to this first appearance. Um, Why she's sad in the start of the downtown sequence. Uh, I think like the everything that's been going on with Goodwin has just been happening. She's been, uh, you know, like having these awkward, awkward interactions with Benjamin. Actually, I mean, we're going to get to this uh, because we've talked about this before on air, but after we conclude season three, we're going to be taking a brief yachtist from season four to cover the the missing pieces, um, mobisodes or mobisodes. And one of them is indeed what happens right before this called the envelope where I believe it's canonized that Juliet is having this breakdown in the mirror because she just saw Ben's uh, tumor x-ray, which confirms to her that, you know, we'll get to this in not in Portland. I think that he said, Hey, if you stay here on the Island with me, I'll make sure your sister's cured of cancer. Right. And when she re- sees the x-ray, she basically realizes that this was a lie. And I think the contextualization is that the breakdown in the mirror that we see right here, despite her trying to dance along to Petula Clark 
is because of that revelation. If she know if she knows that Ben is is punking her. Um yeah, you can you can read all of that in Juliet in this episode, I think. I think you can read the conflict in her. Um she's such a conflicted character. Uh Juliet Burke is a friend of the podcast, Joe Garfine's mm-hmm. all-time favorite lost character. And I love that pick for Joe specifically, but I am not mad at that pick for anybody else who 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 has that. I think that Juliet is such an exciting character. She's such an electric character. And I think so much attention, deservedly so, finds its way towards Ben and Desmond um, and Mr. Echo as like these bright, shiny, new new uh, objects on the field. Um, I'm so pumped for Juliet on this rewatch to spend so much meaningful time with this character over the course of the next three seasons. Um it's going to be really, really fun if this first episode is any indication. Uh, I think there were a lot of reasons why this episode, for me, was going to score relatively high anyway. Um, but Juliet's presence and and what she brings to the table here, uh, a.k.a. Uh, toothpicks in a sandwich uh, and a delicious-looking bowl of fruit salad, uh, she just brings so much. And I was... I was really excited to get to the Juliet era, and I don't know that I realized just how exciting it would be even after one episode. Well, I think what also helps is that she really does. I don't know if this is the writing or if this is Elizabeth Mitchell's performance. It really does feel like she comes to this episode, to your point, as a fully formed character. Yes. Like, there are things we are, of course, going to find out about her, but like the confidence and the role that at least she's perceived in the moment in the organization of the others just seems very present and so though her character will change as we'll see you know by the time that she ends up ending her arc on lost on the island proper she just she the way we first perceive her is someone who has a certain amount of confidence and has a certain placement and hierarchy on the island and i think that informs you know the the way we perceive her and the way she's performed she is a badass in this episode and she has seen much more than ben is right if ben is sort of the head of this organization. Juliet is the face from what we're seeing. She is the one who's talking with Jack. She is the one who tases Sawyer. Yes, Ben has his little beachside dinner with Kate, but Juliet's the one that's really showing her face everywhere and really representing Ben in that regard. And what I really liked about this episode too is to that point, it really does foreshadow Juliet's eventual breaking rank from the others. I know that a few episodes from now is when we're going to get her uh, love actually moment, right? Where she's holding up the cards to Jack about how <laughs> yeah. Ben is lying. What is that? Is that a uh, kill actually? Is that what we <laughs> yeah. want to call that? Yeah. But uh, I think that, you know, you could see things here about how the relationship between her and Ben, even though we don't know the complete circumstances is more tempestuous that you may think. And so by the end of the season, when she has promptly left the others, even though she was sent initially as a mole and is now, you know, hey, using, no spoilers. Their, is now using their information against them. It, it's something that's planted all the way here in the first episode when Ben uh, nearly leaves her to die via rushing in water, which will uh, be a nice way to close out the season as well, ironically enough. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that uh, there, there is that like book ending quality about this episode and very much so. Yeah, I mean, even to, to the point where uh, Sarah bust Jack out of prison in the first episode yep. and bust Jack out of prison or visits him in the hospital in the last episode. Yeah. And I think that this is a good place to lay down the take that I'll, I'll reiterate when we get to a stranger in a strange land that even though that episode is shitty, it reinforces an idea that a tale of two cities starts to set up, which is showing us in the flashback, um, a really, really unsavory look at Jack Shepard. Um, like 
this man should be canceled. Uh, very, 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 very bad behavior from Jack Shepard in in this episode. And like it it gets you to a place where you can believe that like after like causing his father to relapse, he's going to have to go to Thailand for some soul searching. Like he needs a break. Uh, and that that is going to be really uncomfortable and awkward and terrible as well. If only it was better written. It's a good idea, right? Like to continue this idea of like Jack is a lost guy before he hits the island. He went through some shit and he needs to continue like soul searching. And the Thailand stuff goes so poorly for him. Yes, in the writing, but also in the events that you can believe that he would come back from that trip in like a horrible, horrible way. Uh, in like a really bad way, in a worse way than ever before. There is a flashback arc that is being teased through the existence of A Tale of Two Cities and the Thailand stuff in A Stranger in a Strange Land that allows you on that first run to believe that Through the Looking Glass is also a flashback rather than a flash forward. So it's a magic trick that they're playing there that I have a shit ton of respect for in terms of the, the prospect there. I think A Tale of Two Cities plays it fair. Everything that's really unpleasant and terrible about Jack, you don't have to like it, but I think it needs to be here in order to get us to where we're going with Through the Looking Glass. They do a sloppy-ass job with it in Stranger in a Strange Land, but I think it helps reinforce this idea, and then Through the Looking Glass in a really brilliant way, I think leans on those expectations that it's not out of character that the Jack before the island would be so low, uh, because we've seen him really low starting here in a tale of two cities. And, and I think, and, and, and I think as you, as you point out a lot of ways in which these episodes are uh, not Mr. Echoing each other, but are, are echoes of each other where Sarah busting him out of a bad situation absolutely happens. And through the looking glass, at least she's his emergency contact there. So those things connect uh, the, 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 the flooding of a station. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that, I think that a tale of two cities probably to me, Mike gets, maligned unfairly and broad brushed as part of this opening block of six because season three for those who don't know or don't recall uh, like if you if you watched lost on a binge for your first time season three aired its first six episodes effectively as a mini season um, with six uninterrupted weeks and then a big break between episodes six and seven if this was if lost was a big uh cable series in the 2010s it would have done season three and season four would have been starting and not in portland it was it was like it was like season three a and then season three b to put it in walking dead terms um and i think that this first arc the six episode batch of season three gets looked at as a very frustrating period of time in the history of Lost. And there are some episodes where I think that it really earns that reputation. Yes, starting uh, next week, potentially. But I, but I think that I don't... I, my memory of Glass Ballerina is pretty thin. Um, but my my feeling is, is that throughout these six episodes, there are at least um, moments of genuine merit in everything. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think, again, to the point of like, uh, the worst episode of Lost is better than, uh, you know, uh, the best episode of some other shows. Um, but I think A Tale of Two Cities is getting grouped into that. I think as far as it introducing the idea this season of we don't know what to expect from the others. They are not who we thought they were. They give us this really powerful piece of mythology in this opening scene. Um, they very wisely 
attach us to Juliet as our main other in this episode of someone who we do not know, much like Jack, can we trust her? Mm. Um, that there are ways, because we're alone with her, and so we see her sad uh, in a moment of pure isolation and solitude, right? When she's alone in the mirror, we know that there's a person who feels things, who's complicated, but then she also is like playing mind games with Jack. We just don't know. So I think it's it's very clever in that regard, I think it's like all of like the extra frustrating aspects um, that maybe drag out the rest of this mini season. And I think a lot of that gets applied here to this premiere, but I think in a vacuum, I I think this is actually a really good episode of lost. Uh, yeah. I think that this is a better episode of lost than even I had given it credit for in the past. I agree. And I think to the point about Jack's flashbacks, because suffice it to say, again, not jumping too far ahead a couple of hours from now to the ratings, this is a very mixed episode. It really spans the the scale for a lot of people. I've seen some low threes and I've seen some high threes. And I, I do wonder if there is some comparisons, if you're talking about, you know, bad episodes of Lost to something like Fire Plus Water, where the character highlighted in the flashback, it's not fun to watch. And um, there is probably a straw man argument out there of, okay, well, you guys didn't like Fire Plus Water because it was not enjoyable to watch Charlie Spiral. Why did you, were you fine with the Jack flashbacks? And I think it's to your point that it helps to know that these Jack flashbacks feed a larger arc. You know, I think that what they didn't do with Charlie, which is, okay, we're going to throw this in here and then maybe he'll have redemption at the end in like the last three episodes. We'll see. It's very clear here that while infamously they didn't necessarily know where they were going to go with the series at this point in Lost, I think they knew where they wanted to go with these characters' arcs. They're not going to keep, and as I say this right before we go to Thailand with Jack, but I, I don't think they're going to keep throwing out random-ass stories for characters after this first batch of episodes. Well, they don't this want to, and that's why they're making that argument to ABC of like, let us end the show. Exactly, exactly. But I, I think that... This episode does a nice job of, you know, if, if you're boiling down the thesis statement of Jack Shepard in this episode, it's Juliet's quote to him about, I don't think you're stupid. I think you're stubborn. Yeah. And that yeah. is proved in both the flashback and this where, yes, it's, it's, you know, it's a natural extension of that final scene, flashback scene in the hunting party where Sarah tells him that she's seeing somebody else. And, you know, people might find that relentlessly frustrating. That's essentially just Jack being a big old aggressive creep. Yeah. for an entire thing. But I think it informs so much about the way he approaches this situation, which is essentially the parallel parallel themes of when you want to know information and you don't have information, how do you react? And I think Jack's reaction in both of these cases and how it bounces back on him both times, I think is a really interesting parallel to uncover that, as you mentioned, surprised me a bit more than the conventional wisdom behind this episode, which is, oh yeah, this is, you know, Jack getting in a fight with his dad and then just kind of mulling about this dungeonous cell. Yeah, this dungeonous crap. Uh, all right, Which might have floated by after he opened the let's, door. Let's get into the episode proper. And it begins with Juliet Burke playing downtown. Um, and um, actually, I, I did have a fun little Easter egg here for you, Josh. Because yes. there's a featurette on the DVD where uh, Henry Ian Cusick, just on his downtime, was was singing Downtown. Uh, and I got a clip, and I'd love to play it for you if that's oh, okay. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, okay. So this is Henry and Cusick singing Downtown. When you're alone, that life is getting you lonely. You can always go. Ach, tune, tune. So, yeah, that's uh, quite the pipes on him. <laughs> 
How did that happen? <laughs> Is Mike Myers listening to Downtown the Hatch? No, that's The Simpsons. That's not Fat Bastard oh, or Shrek. Really? Oh my God. Is that real? That's from The Simpsons? Yeah, it's from uh, Groundskeeper Willie singing oh, it for audition for the which I actually watched that episode recently. That's why it came to mind. But that's that's so the song has had a place in my mind in multiple that's prongs so because of both the Simpsons, Dune Tune, and this opening of season three. All right. Please at the end of this podcast, play us out with that. Uh, All right. It would make me very, very happy uh if uh if uh, uh groundskeeper Willie becomes the DJ Dom of season three. Uh, it would be pretty amazing. Um Elizabeth Mitchell just takes us on a ride in this performance of oh just standing in front of the mirror. Elizabeth Mitchell is so spectacularly talented. Um, you know, a big piece of why the character dies, I think, is because she gets recruited to star in V. I think I have that right. I might not have that right. I'm no, no, I, I believe because I remember during the final season, there were commercials for V. So I can imagine that oh, the well, show is launching around the same the, time. The, the question is whether or not like, um, you know, Damon and Carlton were like, hey, we're killing off Juliet if you want to go do some pilots. Or if she was like, hey, I am going to uh, probably just go ahead and take this role and you have to kill me off of Lost. I don't know what it is. I'm sure that there's some on the record answers to that. Hmm. Trust, tr you know, trust but verify is the is the deal. <laughs> um, but it's not a surprise to me that a series would want to claim her because she's so 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 good, and she's been a great part of a lot of different great shows um, since that uh, since Lost. Uh, she has a, a really really good arc on The Expanse and just a ton of other things that that uh, Elizabeth Mitchell has been a part of, but. This is why I'm saying she's just arrived so fully formed that throughout this episode, there's so much going on with Juliet. But just in this first scene of her in the mirror, like yeah. crying, stoic, then crying, and then the music lifting her up, like that is Juliet's arc. Yeah. That's the whole arc. The whole arc is her being like, serious business, let me figure out how to advance my science. Oh my God, this place is a nightmare. Oh my gosh, I found love and happiness. And yeah, you die, but also you're happy when you die because you found love. Um, so this whole scene, the mirror scene, the looking glass scene, I should say, uh, this is Juliet. This is Juliet Burke. Is everything you ever need to know about Juliet Burke is happening right here in this scene. Well, not only that, but I feel like the actual song choice itself is going to be unfortunately reflective of Juliet's arc where, you know, downtown is a bit idyllic, right? When life is getting you lonely, you can always go downtown. You can escape and like take in the sights of the urbanity of it all. And I think not only does that hint towards the fact that Dharmaville is indeed like a sort of slice of suburbia in the midst of this desolate jungle, but Juliet herself is, for the most part, unable to really escape her troubles. That time in the 70s, like you mentioned, is the closest she'll get to going downtown between, you know, trying to get off the island for many years and being tricked by Ben to, you know, her drinking and crying, watching the freighter blow up. Like every yep. chance that Juliet has had to seek her downtown essentially goes up in flames quite literally until she does have that moment in season five where it's like, well, my happiness was essentially found on this island. The thing that I wanted was right in front of me the entire time. Uh, so we, we've listened to this already. It's she's, you know, she's getting her house ready for the book club. She's burned her hand on her muffins. Here comes Amelia, who I don't think is a character we see again. Tonight. I don't think so. I think a lot of these, well, here's the thing is that 
So again, I speak about how these episodes do not reflect the Rashomon elements of season two, but I do believe this scene of everyone running outside to see the plane explode, we're going to see three different times. I think it's this, I think it's one of us, and I think it's the other woman. Uh, all Juliet flashbacks that we are going to see the plane explode, Ben give orders, and people run off. And I believe the book club's included in that. So if you count that, then we will see Amelia well, again. We also see her in uh, in the envelope, the the Mobis right. that you previously mentioned. Yes, but I guess outside of this, you know, these ten minutes uh, canonically bad. speaking, like we do not. I like her. I think she's good. It would been been fun to like see uh, like like this this really sweet old woman who then becomes like a scary old other woman. Would yeah, be. but you know who's not fun to watch? Adam. Yeah, stupid Adam. All right, so we're going to get to Adam in a second. There's uh, somebody's working on something. It's a work in progress. Uh, spoiler alert, that's Ethan. Ethan! Yeah, nice, interesting shoes on Ethan. I did not take him for like one of those, you know, big Nike shoes type of guys. The Nike guy. Um, all right, so we've already heard everything from this scene up to this moment. Let's just finish it out. Uh, let's let's start in at the book club and then let's close out with the crash of 815. It's not even literature. It's popcorn. And why isn't it literature, Adam? I'm dying to There's know. There's no metaphor. It's by the numbers, religious hokum pokum. No metaphor? It's science fiction. Now I know why Ben isn't here. Excuse me? I know the host picks the book, but seriously, Julie, he wouldn't read this in the damn bathroom. Well, Adam, I am the host, and I do pick the book. And this is my favorite book. So I am absolutely thrilled that you can't stand it. Silly me for sinking so low as to select something that Ben wouldn't like. Here I am thinking that free will still actually exists on... Whoa. Doorway, get into the doorway. in an hour. Ethan, get up there to that fuselage. There may actually be survivors. And you're one of them. A passenger. You're in shock. Come up with an adequate story if they ask. Stay quiet. If they don't, listen, learn. Don't get involved. I want lists in three days. Go. So I guess I'm out of the book club. Amazing! 
Ugh. I mean, it's it, this is a four point two scene. <laughs> yeah, no, this will let the rest of the episode. If the if the rest of the episode is of the quality of the scene, which I don't think it all is, um, it is it is a you know a, a perfect episode of Lost. It's it's close enough uh, for me. Um, but like this one scene, the whole sequence from downtown through that is just next level stuff. It tells you so much. It it shows you Ben as Ben mm-hmm. uh, in a really big way. Yeah, we got a taste of that in the season two finale. He's actually wearing real civilized clothes you know? instead of the vest mm-hmm. he had to put on. Yeah, so like you're seeing him in that context. You're seeing him as such a decisive leader. Um, you know, he is just uh, he is just like shot calling from the get. Um, and it's it's really, really impressive to see you hear about people's like fear of him through Adam. Um, you see Goodwin again, you see Ethan again, you see how they got to the places that they got to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get it, you just get this incredible perspective on events that we already knew that you know it's it's a tale of two cities in the sense that like you are seeing 815 proper and the tailies get established from a distance. Um, but really it's like the 815 experience as a whole. And then here's this whole other city, literally this whole other city uh, <laughs> that we, we just didn't know about. We, we, we always wondered what did the others look like? What does it look like to be in their shoes? And it's so surreal and so strange. And maybe some of that wears off uh, the more used to lost you are and the deeper uh, you've gone into it. But at the time, certainly, like, this was just so strange and so unlike what you thought their lives would be like. Well, especially because what we're going to see the rest of the episode, we don't go back to that. And we're not going to go back to that for a while. So it shows, again, even though they live this this more uh, normalized life, they're not going to show that. Even though they said, okay, your friends are coming with us, they're still putting up a guise to a certain point. And that's a fun thing to play with throughout season three. And... I remember it's one of these things where you see, you know, uh, you see Juliet walk out and you see Ben walk out of his house and you're like, damn it, they got us again. Because that's the thing with the beginning of Man of Science, Man of Faith was, okay, here's this person from the 70s just going about their day. Oh, wait, it's in the hatch. And then you think, okay, here's this other completely separate thing, uh, you know, from the show. Maybe, maybe this person's Claire's mother or something. And no, damn it, this is the, these are the others. This is where they live. It's a really, just such a well-done rug pull. I think it's so interesting where, you know, the big ending is going to be Ben getting named, which we'll talk about. That's a moment in terms of holding up that maybe doesn't. Uh, but, you know, it's even alluded to here when Adam mentions Ben. And you kind of assume when you know things about Ben that even though he's he doesn't directly get named when he says, I guess I'm out of the book club, that he's the Ben that they're talking about. Speaking of Adam, really fun fact, Josh, Adam is played by Stephen Samell, who is an editor and director on Lost. Oh, that's fun. That's great. I have uh, no idea what the story is as to like how he got pulled into it. He's going to be directing a Gion, and I want to say The Candidate as well. So he has yet to be a director, but he's been an editor since the very beginning, cool, since I think cool. Walkabout. And for some reason, they pulled him in as the biggest a-hole in a book club that I've seen in some time. I love that. Uh, It's a shame that we don't get to see more of the character. Again, like, I think that they do introduce some other characters in this first scene that I would have loved to have seen more of. Uh, Adam Adam being one of them. Adam, what the hell are you talking about? Like, calling this religious hocum-pocum? Like, does... I guess I wonder what he defines as literature. And I wonder if that's What's also the book a book again. It's, it, is it, it's it Carrie. Is, yeah, it's Carrie. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I think we're going to see again, when we do the Rashomon of the book club, we're going to see it from different angles. Also very interesting that Julie 
Juliet's favorite book is Carrie because it again is about someone who is sort of like is under the thumb of a lot of different people and then she breaks free. Right? her like psychic rage. Exactly. So unfortunately <laughs> she does not uh, uh you know have that sort of psychokinetic. Well, you know, you know the ways in which Carrie and Juliet's arc do connect is yeah she doesn't release like psychic rage but she does unleash a nuclear blast. Yeah that's <laughs> actually very true. Uh, she's that's covered in blood. Her own blood as a matter of fact uh, but I think that you know Adam making the comment of oh this is not literature I don't know maybe this is me projecting it feels like a bit of a commentary on loss as a show too of right this is not television because it doesn't have higher level commentary on things which as we sort of digested I think loss is still able to comment on these big themes just maybe in more of a a sci-fi way especially in these later seasons than you may initially believe I don't know where Adam is coming from thinking that it's not literature if if lost uh doesn't uh have metaphor uh if it isn't literature then I'm in trouble uh and so (laughs) are you in fact because we've spent so much time uh analyzing the show and talking about the show and this show has um has has informed my view of fiction in in, right. in such a way uh, that it's very influential on me. Uh, I I do not as- I I do not subscribe to the idea that um pop culture fiction can't be really deep and powerful and resonant and right. meaningful. You're uh, definitely am, you're definitely you're definitely team video games are art. Video games are absolutely art if done right. Uh you know, and even if done poorly, it's just shitty art. Uh you know, but it the, art is art is art is art. And uh the, the narrow view that uh something like this is not art. Um you know, I guess you can have that take but you're out of my book club. Um <laughs> all right, flashback time. Uh and it's a quick one. Uh Jack is just like in the car, drinking coffee, listening to uh, Sarah. I mean, he's listening to Moon Knight Serenade, which makes me think, was this also a transmit from the 40s? And he just happens to have a time-traveling car. Right, and this is the song that is playing um, in season two. In when, Long Con, yeah, with the, yeah, the radio that Saeed and Hurley fix up. Yeah, so maybe they're listening to the same thing at the same time. Who knows? Uh, pretty fun, though. Uh, and Jack is just like quaking with fury as Sarah is at her job working <laughs> with a, a colleague who may or may not be the man she is with. She just seems like she's being like a happy, nice human being. And that is getting under Jack's skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like the needle apparently got under Jack's mm-hmm. skin from the Band-Aid when he wakes up in the dungeon. <laughs> yeah. Flashback Jack in uh, this episode, certainly a major douchebag. Oh, uh, yeah. And like douchebag in terms of like, obsessive going aggro just being snippy with everybody like obviously he's in a very tumultuous time the divorce proceedings are happening but as you talked about like this is a man who is on the break of just a complete breakdown if he hasn't had one already and i gotta give it up to matthew fox here again is it the most savory take on a character no but he does a good job of at least showing those elements in the character no he's he's bad he's it's a very unsavory take on the character for sure um he wakes up in a room uh he's a sweaty mess there's gauze on his arm and a band-aid he rips it up uh there's a there's an intercom in the corner that doesn't really work so with regards to the band-aid do you think because we see it with kate as well assumingly with sawyer though it wasn't on air do you think it's that blood was taken from them or they were injected with something yeah i don't know um i'm not really sure where any of this actually takes us right uh in in the in the grand scheme of things 
Yeah, um, I mean, maybe it's something where, like, just for... It could be something for, like, medical purposes. I mean, again, it seemed like they had the dossier files on them so they would know their blood type, but maybe if just for medical purposes they wanted to do the blood yeah. test and clear everything. It literally could be, like, how are these guys holding up? They've been on an island, on, you know, without any kind of civilized attention for two months. Uh, and especially for Jack, like... Is he doing okay? We got to get that guy's electrolytes up. Yeah. He's got to perform a surgery. So it could be as simple as that. Um, but I think what the, the effect is that Jack is so discombobulated and this is such a disorienting situation that we, the viewer as well, are discombobulated and disoriented. And I actually do think that that pairs well too with the Jack of the flashback being yes. so far gone um, that like Jack is... It, in many ways recognizable because he is so stubborn and has been throughout his whole run on the show, but that he on the Island is out of his element is indoors for the whole time. And we don't know where he is. And in fact, he is uh, once again, subterranean, um, but is also like acting like a, you know, not acting like he is a stalker. He's an obsessive. He's got uh, very, very significant issues in the past. Um, so I think that that all helps to disorient us. Uh, disorientation could have been uh, uh, a title of of this episode. There's yeah, plexiglass wall. Oh, and I and do. I have I have to admit I I laughed when he. I don't know. <laughs> there, this episode is actually like pretty good with physical comedy. I know it's yeah. weird to sort of buttered up against the general unpleasantness of the others, uh, sort of putting them in these cages quite literally. But there was something about Matthew Fox just walking into a plate glass window. It was fairly that satisfying. Make it was fairly satisfying. Uh, it's no stepping on a rake sideshow Bob style. Uh, so he's trying to like kick at the at the wall. He's trying to break the wall. He's calling for Kate. Kate, can you hear me? And she can't because Kate is elsewhere. Let's listen in sound number dose. Rise and shine, Kate. Where am I? You don't really think I'm going to answer that, do you? Where are Sawyer and Jack? I'll tell you what. Why don't you just take a nice hot shower? Wake yourself up. Wash the day off you. And start fresh. A nice clean towel, shampoo, soap. I'm not showering in front of you. <laughs> Kate, you're not my type. Josh, I feel... I feel so bad for Kate in this episode. This is not a good episode for Kate. It's a tough episode for Kate. I have one issue with Kate in this episode, which we could either get into now or we could get into later. Uh, I just got to say, Kate eats a continental breakfast and she's still hungry. She needs a fish yeah. biscuit. Yeah, I, I will say like, well, obviously, and we'll get into You're it. You're taking uh, Troyer's fish biscuit. You just had bacon and eggs and coffee. Yeah, and, and this guy needs something. Like he's dehydrated. He just ran a good so amount. hard for the fish biscuit. Ah, that's the one thing that really bugs me about Kate in this episode. But otherwise, oh, a rough one for Kate where she is like being dressed up like a doll, yeah. right? Like she is. Being well, not, not only like that, like she, yeah, she has to wake up. First off, I do wonder how the planning turned out of like, well, we, we pumped them up with enough drugs that they will wake up at this specific time. Or do you think friendly was standing there for like half an hour with the shower running, well, just like waiting yeah. for that big reveal to happen? Well, maybe it takes a little time to warm up the water. So they could have timed it. Well, that could be another reason why they've got the gauze. Like they've been, um, mm. you know, given drugs 
things to to like stay unconscious. It's also just a weird thing to be like, okay, great. We're going to have her wake up on the floor of the shower. Mm-hmm. Like at least Sawyer and Jack get some sort of lodgings. They threw her on the floor of a shower. Now, why Sawyer? <laughs> exactly. And this is also where we get like uh, Tom Friendly in his true form, right? Cargo vest and no beard. Cargo vest, no beard. He tells Kate, you're not my type. Um, I think that this was written as confirmation that Tom is gay. Um, I know that that's, I, I believe that that's canonized eventually. Yes. Well, um, I think meet Kevin Johnson. He's going to be like outright with it. But yeah, this is the first hint to it. Um, but it's an it's another step towards, uh, I, I think like, again, disorientation and and taking characters who you viewed one way and and now you're flipping the view. And I, I think with with Tom, who we've only known really as uh, as Zeke, as Mr. Friendly, as the scary other with the beard who stole Walt off a boat. Um, now we are getting the friendly side of him, right? Like he is he is he is talking to Kate like all of this is really, really messed up, but he's being delicate with her. He's being careful with her. He's like, there's your clothes. There's a towel. There's all this. She's like, get out of here. He's like, don't, don't be threatened by me. Like, you're not my type. I'm not into you. Um, like they are, they are trying to, I don't know if they're outright like defanging this character, but they're demystifying him to a yes. certain degree, which is actually more mystifying in, in many ways. Yeah, uh, I, if you don't like me at my Tom, then you can't get me at my friendly. You can't friendly. get me at my friendly, yeah. yeah. But the wake-up locations are so interesting as well, because we're about to get to Sawyer waking up in the polar bear cages, which we will spend a long time in for the foreseeable future. But it's so interesting to me. You know, Jack, we're sort of like doing a transition here, right? We're moving from indoors and Jack sort of waking up on like uh, a very desolate, like bear bed speaks towards, you know, how he's sort of been trapped indoors uh, with his career to Kate, who, as we talked about in the season two feedback show, has sort of been like fetishized for the past couple seasons that she once again has to take a shower in a weird location to Sawyer, Mr. I'm in the wild, having to wake up in a cage. And as someone who also spent a lot of time behind bars, that he is behind bars once again and in probably the most demeaning environment he's been in yet. Yeah, uh, the Sawyer stuff, uh, I really like this episode, man. Like Sawyer wakes up at the polar bear cage. There's the other cage across the way. You're getting like these bare bits of information. The 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 show is is having you piece all of this stuff together from the perspective of the characters, and I love that. There's the Hydra logo. We'll find out it's called the Hydra Station later on in the mm-hmm. episode. Uh, there's stupid freaking Carl in the other cage. I hate Carl. So Carl, much. now you won't be able to unsee it. Carl and the actor who plays him has probably the biggest nostrils I've ever seen in a person in my life. I've, I have not noticed that before. Look at a picture of the actor, especially the, the shot when he's shoved up against the cage later on. His nostrils could fit, I don't know, several balloon animals in them. Um, that's terrifying to consider as somebody who has just a butt ton of balloon animals <laughs> shoved into their nostrils is a horrifying. Maybe that's what happens in Route 23. <laughs> He reminds me not of Luke Skywalker, uh, although I think that that's supposed to be something of a touch point. It's like he's got sort of this young Mark Hamill vibe. I'm blanking on the name of the character, but like the the brother from uh, the the Ewok movies, uh, whoever mm. like who who himself was supposed to be like uh, a C list Luke Skywalker, which makes Carl like an F list Luke Skywalker. I don't like him. I dislike Carl. 
Maybe yeah, he's, the a, he's, he's, he's a little dweeb, but he's a bit of a dweeb. I don't love him. Not my favorite. Uh, and he's not like he's giving Sawyer like some some casual warnings like, hey, you don't want to push that button. Trust me. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, buddy, you're not going to want to do that. Uh, and Sawyer's just like, whatever, Carl. Um, he doesn't actually say, if I want your advice, I'll ask for it, Carl. But that line is weirdly cut off. And it's because the line originally was, if I want your advice, I'll ask for it, Carl. So there must be a scene that's cut out where Sawyer mm -hmm. and Carl are introduced before all of this goes down. Well, I mean, he's also cut off by the fact that, again, another piece of whether meaning to or not, pretty funny physical comedy. <laughs> Sawyer hitting the warning button and getting completely blasted. blasted. And he's like, man, this will be the most physical pain I'll, I'll ever feel on the show. And just you wait, Sawyer. Very, much, wait. very much not the case. Uh, so we are getting introduced to the idea that these cages are dangerous. Um, back in the Jack layer in the dungeon, there's a chain, a simple chain, uh, dangling from the ceiling. Uh, and Jack is going to spend so much time yanking on that chain. Yeah. And, uh, I wanted to bring up a quote about this because, uh, apparently I think it was Jack Bender had asked Damon Lindelof, like, why is Jack going to consistently keep, uh, yanking on that chain? And Lindelof just assured him by saying, don't worry, Fox will sell it. And he did, which, you know, jury's still out on it. I don't know if a performance makes up for the fact that he's literally trying to pull the ceiling down on him for the entirety of the episode. Well, I think he's thinking like, maybe there's something I can pull. It'll be some sort of lever that opens up another thing, whatever. He's also no, dehydrated. I mean, knowing the station is just going to be another flood of water <laughs> coming in and yeah, killing him. Yeah. It's a very, it's very odd behavior. And even Juliet comes in and is like, hey, stop that. Uh, and she introduces herself. Hi, Jack. I'm Juliet. Uh, and Juliet is in the house. Uh, she is on the show proper at this point. She has crossed paths with an 815er. Yeah. And I mean, this is also going to be, it makes sense as to Juliet being the first person that Jack talks to. Uh, not only do they share sort of medical experience, but this is going to be the very, very slim beginnings of a new love quadrangle. Whereas we spoke about it before, Juliet is going to replace Anna Lucia, where Juliet and Jack are going to sort of have their own little flirtmance going on, where Kate and Sawyer are going to have much more of a flirtmance going on in this first batch of episodes. Oh yeah, no, they're just going to straight bang. Um, flashback time. Divorce... Divorce discussions, the proceedings are proceeding apace, except for the fact that Jack has fired his lawyer. Uh, he shows up sans lawyer. He shows up stag to the lawyer meeting. Uh, I wonder if they were the same people who represented Susan. Maybe. Just like they all did you all lost based divorces. Yeah. And he's like, I fired him. And she's like, you did what? <laughs> uh, so Sarah is not thrilled with Jack's behavior as Jack is saying, uh, like, I, I want us to work this out. I think it's game time. I think we can do this. Sarah gets a call from somebody. Yeah, this is not, again, like, I know we're supposed to feel a tinge of sympathy for Sarah because Jack is just pursuing her relentlessly. But, like, I still will not let go of the fact that she was seeing somebody else for a while by the end of the hunting party. Like, you know, I feel bad for Jack apologizing to her being like, I pushed you to this place. When again, she was the one carrying on with somebody else much longer than the brief dalliance that he had. And she just completely interrupts their conversation by taking a phone call in the middle of things, well, which could be is super rude. Call. It could be an important call. And she doesn't care about Jack's feelings anymore uh, because 
you have to wonder what did Jack do to push her away? And I think Jack's behavior in this episode really speaks for itself. I think being married to this guy must have been a nightmare. Um, so I, I'm fully team Sarah here, and she's got to live her life. She's got to take her phone calls from the people who are still in her life, and she should not be uh, held to 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 you know to account for like cracking a smile during a phone call with somebody who she actually still cares about. Jack seems to be like really severely wounded by that. And he's still just very obsessively saying, I need to know the name of the man who is with my wife. And if we talked before about like the transformative journey that Elizabeth Mitchell's face goes on when she's looking in the mirror as Juliet in the beginning of this episode. Uh, but we, we go for a ride with Julie Bowen as Sarah in this look back at Jack, where she looks at him first with like sympathy mm -hmm. uh, and then like some like rage. And then this look that just like shuts it all down. Uh, and I, I love that performance from Julie Bowen of like, you don't get to know this. Like, this is not your business to know. And also maybe she doesn't trust him with this information. Like it might not just be an act of cruelty, uh, to withhold the name of her partner in this conversation with Jack, given the way that Jack is behaving, maybe for the safety of her new boyfriend, she doesn't want Jack to know who this guy is. Should she throw out a fake name then? Do like a George Glass scenario? <laughs> Jeremy Baramy. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the thing is that... The life and I, death of Jeremy Baramy. Well, I do agree that, you know, there, there might be legitimate consequences. It does also feel like, you know, in not telling him, you're also making things worse. You know, it is really a lose-lose situation because she knows firsthand he has trouble letting stuff go. And I feel like the way that she tried to pursue it just only made things worse for her in that it just means, I mean, I guess on the bright side, yes, she put, would possibly risk Jeremy Baramy, you know, possibly ending up at the other side of Jack's fist, but also she's just like poking him to have him invade her life even more and more. So I guess she's able to withstand it, but it's a, it's a tough choice to make. Yeah. But she's got to live her life. The onus has to be on Jack to stop being a creepo depot. Uh, like I, I think Sarah's just got to live her life. So I'm, I'm totally, I love Jack as a character. You know, I think that the Jack arc is one of the most satisfying arcs on all of lost. Uh, and I think it's really important that he looks like shit in this episode because I yeah. think that that sets us up for where we're going. Um, but man, he looks like a, like a full ass, uh, in all of this. And I think that that's being kind to him. Um, uh, mileage may vary back on the island in the Hydra station. Uh, Juliet is going to be like, Hey, get down, get down from that table, stop yanking that chain. And he's like, I'm not gonna stop yanking the chain. You think I'm stupid? She says, No, <laughs> I don't think you're stupid, I think you're stubborn. Uh, which is such a great distillation of Jack Shepard as a character, yeah, exactly. And I think it's also, it also accurately shows that even though he's gonna, she's gonna show how much information she has on him already, that. You know, they know a lot more about A15 than I think we initially recognize. Even we saw it even with maternity leave, like how much they knew about Claire. Yeah. But it really shows how much they have been on the other side of that plastic wall, this one-way mirror observing them the entire time. And it also shows that Juliet is much better with Jack than at the at bedside manner. You know, even though this bedside manner is a little less about, you know, being kind to a patient and more so about manipulating somebody to do what you want them to do, the long con, if you will. The way she approaches Jack with such kindness and surety in that statement alone shows that she is just a master of this, more so than Jack could be.
Yeah. Uh, no, her bedside manner crushes Jack's bedside manner. <laughs> like, just absolutely obliterates his bedside manner. Uh, and, so- I, and I also love that Jack responds to that by looking at her and then just completely verifying her statement by going back to the chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just keeps going. Uh, all right, so we go back to Kate. She's out of the shower. Her clothes have been burned. They burned her clothes. Uh, she doesn't know that yet. She'll find out. Uh, but there's a locker with a taped message. Wear this. Very Alice in Wonderland, right? Like, drink mm-hmm. me. Um, and there's a dress in it, and this is what she will be wearing for the next several weeks of the show. Uh, Tom Friendly is going to bring Kate to Ben. He's waiting. With like, with, like, four other people. Like, they really flanked her because they knew she has a chance to, to, like, really get away from them. You need six guns, right? Like, that's why you need six guns. It's Kate Austin. They've got, they've read the file, so they know they at least, uh, if they're going to have six guns, let's at least have six people uh, chaperoning her. Uh, so they're going to bring her to this uh, this beachside buffet. I guess it's not. It's uh, it's a prefix menu. Yeah, I, I call it a BBB, Ben's Beach Bungalow. Yeah, Ben's Beach Bungalow is here, and there's some bacon and eggs. There's a tomato bouquet, uh, some ketchup, some OJ, coffee, strawberries, and handcuffs. A well-rounded mm. breakfast. Uh, Kate is going to sit down with Ben, and Ben is going to explain exactly why uh, they are brunching together. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to put those on. And if I don't? And you don't get any coffee. A little tighter. Please? What did you do with Sawyer and Jack? Now, why Sawyer? Why Sawyer what? It's the first one you asked about. What did you do with Sawyer and Jack? You don't know me. Of course I don't. I want my clothes back. We burned them. Why did you bring me here? Why did you make me put on this dress? Why are you feeding me breakfast? I brought you here so you'd look out at the water and feel comforted. Comforted that your friends were looking out at the same ocean. I gave you the dress so you'd feel like a lady. And I wanted you to eat your food with a real live fork and feel civilized. I did all those things so that you'd have something nice to hold on to. Because, Kate, the next two weeks are going to be very unpleasant. those are the writers talking to the fans yeah it could be (laughs) next few episodes are going to be totally unpleasant it's fair warning right (laughs) yeah there's so much interesting stuff in this scene i want to do like a quick uh brief 
foray into the music because uh, Jim Fells pointed out there's an instrument that Michael Giacchino doesn't really use a lot, which is the French horn. Yeah. He feels that it's too noble. And he actually said in an interview with the New Yorker, uh, quote, for me, it feels like you want this show to be the most uncomfortable experience ever. And so it makes sense as to why the old French horn is brought out for this scene is because this is probably the most unpleasant scene of the episode because it, again, it's like this, this smiling veneer of here's Ben. He's giving you breakfast. He's right. giving you an, a pretty dress to wear. And then you get, you find out, Oh, it's because he's going to put you through hell for the next couple of weeks. And because he's like, you know, you are wearing handcuffs, even though you're enjoying this breakfast because don't get things twisted. You are his prisoner. It's, it's a small touch uh, but I think it's really cool to trot out an instrument for the first time in three seasons to truly show the new environment that we're in. Yeah, I, I really like it. It's very menacing. We don't get a ton of Ben and Kate interaction along the way, right? Like, I think it yeah. is relatively limited. Even yeah, you can only really, the only other ones I can really think of are like uh, the end of season four when they're running away from Kimi together. She also saves his life as a child. Um, yeah, that's true. She also you know, helps save him from a from his life as an adult when he gets hit by a tree in the end. Yeah, I mean he's he's got a lot of deep relationships with a lot of different characters. I don't think Kate is is really one of them. So you, you savor the flavor of a scene like this, but it is like a very bitter taste. Uh, it is you know that coffee's burnt. Uh, it's it's coffee. It's, it's it's eerie. It's eerie. It's weird. It's it's strange. It's a it's it's uncomfortable. It it it, it should unsettle Kate. It should unsettle us. If I want to be kinder to Kate about eating Sawyer's fish biscuit, it would be because maybe she lost her appetite, uh, at least for the moment, or maybe didn't trust the food any further. I hope she ate it. I hope so, too. I mean, again, that's has been, uh, you know, foreshadowed. That's going to be the best meal she has in quite some time. Something I, I looked at in my research, Josh, that I had no idea about. Apparently, this scene was inspired by Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. Uh, where the character of Marion gets like this, this pretty dress to wear. And it sort of has the same purpose to make, you know, Kate is obviously a tomboy and it's meant to make her feel, even though again, on the surface, it's, oh, you get something nice to wear. Kate is someone that we usually don't see in a dress. And so it's like almost putting her in an outfit that she's uncomfortable with before they put her in an uncomfortable situation. Also, I don't know if you remember, but I distinctly remember at the time because this scene was only that long, only the two minutes that we played in the clip, there was so much speculation as to what the rest of that breakfast was like to the point where people were saying, is Kate a spy for Ben? You know, I guess uh, the Michael stuff really got people's uh, neuroses going as to who could be another spy for the others to the point where Damon Lindelof had to say in a scene, basically like there was nothing else happening in that breakfast. We did not mean to set anything up to make anybody's uh, theories fire. We never had a plan. All I can say is hand to God, nothing happened. Okay. Uh, that is what Christian is saying as well. In this flashback with Jack calling a bunch of people obsessively numbers on Sarah's cell phone. How does he have these numbers, by the way? I believe, I mean, I don't know. I wonder back in those days, like you could get or you could get records of a certain telephone number just distributed to you. I, again, like feel like this is just awful. What he's doing is he's just going through the list of everybody she's called. Like, this is so bad. Jack, what are you doing, guy? Um, this is a person who just... This is like the really, really, really severely ugly look at the guy who refuses to fail. 
right? Yeah. Uh, you know, like there have been moments where like he has so stubbornly refused failure in the past and has to be let off the hook by a dying boon. It's like, please don't mm-hmm. cut off my leg. Please just let me die. Uh, this is like a very, very unsavory, unheroic look at all of that. Christian's on the list. Christian's been called. And Jack's like, why is she calling you dad? Because like, it's not because we're a thing. I'll tell you that. You're losing your grip, son. Yeah, and he uh, says, uh, I think I know a little something about being obsessive. And yeah. Jack, it takes that very snidely. Yeah. Uh, very much the wrong way. Being a drunk is not being obsessive. Yeah. The, I think that the real tuned in statement from this entire exchange is, you know, Jack going through the laundry list of what he wants to know about the suitor, where he works, where they first kiss, specifically him saying, I want to know what it is about him. Yeah. Cause that's going to come back later when Sarah tells Jack, like, it's not about what he is it's about what you're not. Oh yeah. We'll hear and, that. Cause that, that is uh, one of the most uh, expertly landed uh, emotional snipes of the series. Well, and, but that's, I think that's exactly what it is though, is that Jack is not necessarily fixated on like, I want to know who this guy is so I can beat him up. It's more so about like, what does he have that I didn't? What I'm, if I'm a broken person, what do I need to fill in to make myself whole? for her and that that's an obsession that again is going to take him to the brink and i think it's it's great that we fixate on that and less so about just like the what's his name where did he graduate from it's just more so about (laughs) like his major exactly about his minor i want to know more about him because it's very clear he has something that i don't and i need to know that yeah yeah so that's what's up with uh, with Dr. Jack in the past and freaking out about Christian. And he's even freaking out about Christian in the present because back in the cage, I guess it's not a cage, back in the dungeon, in the aquarium, the intercom starts going, uh, but not really. And he hears Christian's voice, let it go, Jack. Uh, yeah, this is smoky 100%. This in is my me opinion. pushing the communicate button on the intercom asking, is this a smoke monster? Because it, it absolutely is. This is, to me, it's very similar to it'll come back around when Sawyer's haunted by Frank Duckett. It is the smoke monster reading his memories and just effing with him, yeah. knowing that he is, again, at the brink. He is going insane. He has been yanking his chain for hours, and that is not a euphemism for anything. And <laughs> oh, he, he, he just wants to do something one more time. Yeah, yeah. Jack's going blind uh, <laughs> on the Hydra Island. Yeah, the smoke monster, the fumes of the smoke monster and in the intercom system. I'm here for it. Sign me up. Canon. Let it go. Jack is the smoke monster confirmed. Uh, Juliet shows up. We get a really great extended scene with Jack and Juliet that we'll listen to a little bit of. Um, first, it, it begins with, with Juliet bringing in the food, laying up the score. This is how it works. You sit there. I open the door. I leave the tray. He doesn't want the food, even though it's a delicious sandwich. It's grilled cheese. Yeah, with, with, with two picks even to make it look fancy in each of the quarters, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. so uh, he's starting to eye her uh, and starting to try and like suss out whether or not Juliet is legit. Uh, and it leads to this uh, this little game of smoke and mirrors that I, I, I really, really love this exchange. So let's listen in and have this be uh, our springboard into the rest of the conversation. What do you do, Jack? What's your profession? I'm a repo man. You know, when people don't pay their bills, I go into the bank and I collect their possessions. I'm a people person, so I really love it. Are you married? No. I never saw the point. What about you? What's your job besides making sandwiches? I didn't make it. 
I just put the toothpicks in. <laughs> I would make a repo man joke, but I'm pretty sure we made that during Sawyer saying he was a repo man, or when he, we were talking about him initially being a repo man during the series Bible days. Well, that was so. That was what their plan was for Hurley, right? Like their plan for Hurley was that he was going to be a repo man who yeah. who was able to charm everybody into giving him their their stuff because he's just the most likable person on the planet. Um, so this is very self referential, and I'm a repo I'm a repo man. I'm a people person, yeah, so but really also Jack Beast. Selling it in the worst way possible. Yeah. Just like angry person. Like, I'm a repo man because I'm a people person. Yeah. Don't you see how much of a people person I am as I'm angrily stating this to you? Yeah, it's just so fun. Uh, so it's it's just really, really great. And then Juliet of saying, I just put the toothpicks in. I don't put it like coming back to him with a little bit of sass. Coming back. And coming back, you know, like with a little bit of that sass, I think, uh, uh, I don't, I don't know if Jack outright like respects it, but he responds to it, right? Because yeah. as the conversation continues, she's going to ask him another question and he's going to give her the truth now. Um, yeah, like, so I, I wondered that. Why do you think he does that? Because there's, 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 there's this look his, where he his, looks her in the eye and then he changes his mind. His father is maybe just like a holy subject, right? And so this question of where were you flying from? And he tells her the truth. He was coming from Sydney. He was bringing his father home because he was dead. Um, like that is just such tortured, unhealed ground for him. It is the raw wound of his life uh, that I don't think he can even like stubborn Jack, who's not a good liar anyway. Um, I don't know that he is able to like, you know, preserve the walls on that one. Mm. Another thing that I thought of while watching this episode, and it's a bit surface level, but I really have to feel like it can't be coincidental that Julie Bowen and Elizabeth Mitchell are both blonde. And maybe to the point that Ben knows that as well. I believe that, they bring that up in the show. Like, I, I, I'm pretty sure that that gets mentioned at some point of, like, um, it's pretty queer that you sent Juliet in, like, to remind me of yeah. my wife. Or something like that. Someone can remind us by by hitting us up. I'm I'm almost positive. No, you... I, I feel like that's maybe we're Mandela-ing it, but that feels sounds familiar to me. And that also makes sense as to maybe why Jack does that is because obviously, uh, even though his father is a sore subject between him and Sarah, you'd have to imagine that there is some sort of personability there. And the fact that the their, his Christian was a connector between him and Sarah in some bastardized way by the end of it, there is sort of a subject that when you get brought up, it's like a, a moment that lets you see someone else in a person and that allows Jack to like briefly stop yanking that chain and start to actually tell the truth. What I also found was super interesting about these epi this episode between Kate and Jack was the the tactic that Ben and Juliet take where Kate, Kate and Jack will ask questions and they won't get an answer, right? The others will just like either bring up something completely different or they'll ask a question back and it's an, a really interesting effect to like throw them off their game where they're not going to get answers, but the surety at which they respond shows how much in a power position they are. Yeah, they've got the numbers, right? You know, the the uh, Jack and Sawyer and Kate are just going to get paganged to the jury. <laughs> so, like, they don't have the power. They can't They can't ask the questions and expect the answers. So Juliet's not even going to bother. I, I've always had... Um, I've always struggled a little bit with the reads here of like when Jack is like, what the hell is going on when Juliet seems like she and Jack have like finally gotten close and then she'll, she'll walk away. Mm. Um, like this happens twice, right? Where she walks yeah. away eating some of the grilled cheese and then she'll walk away eating some of the fruit salad. I don't think she's eating the fruit salad, but she'll walk away without the fruit salad. 
when he goes and turns and walks and sits in the corner, um, which he's using as a as a tactic, right? Um, but my my question is like, are those like power moves on her part, or is it a question of like the function of the room and the function of the underwater station? I don't know that the episode makes that super clear. Yeah, so I think that there's just like a, a clarity of that information that maybe the episode's a little clumsy on. Um, yeah. Because I, 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 yeah. I don't know how to read it if Juliet's just being like, thanks, Jack, and it's just a mind game. I don't I don't think that that's quite as satisfying a read unless it's like, for her, it's a mind game that she's she's doing this on orders from Ben, and it's unsavory to her as well. Yeah, that's the thing, because I feel like Juliet, the character, would not be one necessarily to be like, ooh, I got Jack where I wanted him, and now I'm going to leave him hanging. Uh, and I think that, unfortunately, comes at the price of it really showing the others that, like you said, we get like a peak of the leg here in front of the curtain, but we're not going to see the whole body just yet. And I do think they purposely obscure some things to still make the others seem like this big, bad, mysterious group of people that when you know the full extent of information about these characters, especially does not play particularly well in this episode. Yeah. All right. So she's going to walk away. We're going to go back to the cages uh alert alert carl has escaped carl has escaped and, and a little bit of a jump scare right where we just get like the, the cage being empty and then big old nostrils pops in and, <laughs> oh and says come on run i feel bad calling out we shots. see up his nose so much i that's all i could see <laughs> oh my god but yeah he's you run this way i'll run that way sawyer runs and really the key thing here is that this is the the James and Juliet yeah. meet cute. This is the meet cute. <laughs> it's a shocker, for lack of a better term. Yeah, you know, she shoots him with the with the shocker dart, uh, and that's gonna knock him out. And that's the first time that James and Juliet have ever interacted. So sweet. And I, I mean, I guess it's interesting to have Juliet appear because again, she's sort of been given this role as like, wow, she's doing so much. You would think Ben would dispatch like Friendly or any of the other goons to take care of this, right? Like send Pickett in there if you want to. It's weird that Juliet herself, maybe she just happened to run past the cages on her way out of the aquarium and happened to tase Sawyer in that moment. Shouldn't be her job. Also, maybe they just haven't gotten um, uh, Pickett to Hawaii yet right mm. uh, it's possible yeah. that the actor is just not available yet interesting use of like a pov camera right that stays on sawyer as he's taken yeah. into the cage again odd. again, Very odd. yeah it shows but i think i think it also shows like the disorienting view that we're taking of like we have no idea where sawyer's going and oh it's back in the cage uh carl has already been caught um and really no shock that carl's gotten caught because in addition you know it's not just that i dislike carl for for no reason Carl has lived on the island for however long he's lived. And he doesn't even realize that he's not on the main island right now. Like he's asked, sorry, like how far to your beach? How long did it take to get there? And he gets caught in five seconds. Carl, you really didn't think any of this through. And how do you not know that you're on Hydra Island? Well, I'm trying to, so this is the first time that Carl has been put in the cage, right? Cause Ben is, uh, I not know it even exists. At this point. Yeah. Well, Ben is paranoid that Alex, he's going to get Alex pregnant. And so like any good father, he locks her boyfriend away yeah. in a cage. But yeah, to your point, like Carl's been there. You'd imagine that he at least heard whim of the fact that they are on an Island that is separate from the other Island. I don't know exactly. Maybe he's just perpetually drugged up as well. I'm not sure about the map he has in his head at the moment. Yeah. Strange. Odd. 
Very odd behavior. Um, all right, so he gets captured. He sucks. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's getting dragged off to room 23, which leaves a vacancy in the other cage. Yes, which will be filled momentarily. Um, I wonder what their plan was. Were they, were they going to move Carl into room 23 anyway, maybe? Um, Juliet's going to come back to Jack. She's got fruit. Uh, the drugs that Jack is on are dehydrating him. His throat's going to get raw. He's going to start hallucinating soon. Nobody wants that. Um, and she's like telling him, you got to hydrate, you got to eat. And Jack goes, oh, so you're a doctor. And she goes, oh, no, I'm a repo woman, uh. which is very, very, very funny. But also like, shut up, Jack. I know everything about you. Well, it's also interesting the tactic that she takes in this particular conversation where, like you said, in her outlining her, his symptoms, she's speaking to him on a very practical medical level because she knows he will understand what she's talking about. Yeah. Right. Like Jack has done this before where he has listed what will happen to people should they sustain certain injuries on the island the past two seasons. She's treating him like a patient. And you'd imagine that he would understand that. Uh, and, you know, she, she also vocalizes to him like this isn't an interrogation. You don't need to answer my questions. I just need something from you. But again, to the the questionable tactics that she's taking, she chooses not to disclose that that you know favor until much later. Yeah. So she's gonna get him convinced to to go and sit with his back at the far door. Uh, she says, "I know it feels like you're losing if you do anything I ask you to do, but you're not. You need to eat." So Jack gives in to sense, but I think also this is Jack being like, "All right, I'm I'm thinking through a tactic." Yeah. Um, so and, she's going to leave, and it's either because it's, like, the function of the room or Ben is telling her to, like, continue being, like, uh, sneaky and weird. I, I I, think it's probably a function of the room, but I don't mm. know. Well, I think it's also a bit symbolic that he has to put his back up against the wall considering the position that he's in, right? It's almost like physically show how cornered you are by us in this moment. Yeah. Also, I mean, that's also the the yanking of the chain, right? Of yeah. like Jack just like tilting at windmills and and uh, doing, uh, you know, something that is completely, no results are going to be had from, from pulling on this chain on the roof. Uh, no results are going to be had from you continually asking Sarah who's the, the, who's the new boyfriend what's his name like that's never gonna gonna lead yeah so take adam a, take says a, there's no metaphor but you know instead take a new tactic tail your dad to an aa meeting that'll help things so he so he tails his dad to an aa meeting and it's awful we have to listen and here's the sound jack give me your cell phone what what, what? i want to see it now look where you are jack I mean, just look around you please Give me the phone. This is not the place for this. You must be Jack. Why don't you uh, grab a chair and join us? You, you know me. Yes. Your father's told us all about you. Yeah, what's he told you about me? What'd you tell him about me, Dad? That your, your son never really had it? Not like the old man. I didn't have the will to make it work. My, my life, my job, my marriage. Would you tell him about my marriage, Dad? You know how he manages his marriage? A bottle of scotch every night before dinner. Your father has been sober 50 days now. We're very proud of that. <sighs> wow, Dad. <sighs> I wonder what, what helped you turn that corner. I think maybe it was a, a new lady friend. You think maybe that's what I'm I will not let you talk to me. I will not let you sleep with my wife. 
Jack, I'm your father. Jack, please, just let it go. Yeah, said, Jack treating his dad like he did John Locke during the Boone Earl. He said the secret word, uh, let it go. Yeah, ah! that, that's sort of like his trigger word, right? He's do almost you, like the Winter Soldier, and that sends him into aggro mode. Do you think that Christian told anybody at his meeting about Jack and Sarah's marriage? <laughs> Their marriage is on the rocks. Yeah. Um, so I want to make sure I grab the idol to help save tough. it. It's tough. This is tough, because Christian's trying to pull his life back together. And here comes Jack, who who decimates it. Uh, oh. You know, uh, I think especially for someone who has had Christian's disease for as long as he's had it, I think it the the road to recovery for him must be very fragile. He's he's a narcissist, admitting weakness and needing uh, help. Uh, very difficult things for him, I I have to imagine. Um, but something as like seismic as this, and like embarrassing as this, is his own son showing up and like publicly shaming him and there is that piece of it too of like oh wow good for you 50 days like it's it's really 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 super rough like it doesn't yeah. negate the fact that christian's been a bastard for for so much of his life um but it is still really painful to to see at least i felt that way no i i completely agree because i think it's this thing of like no matter how you feel about a person at least i always want to see them do better you know, I, I want to see people have the capacity to say, like, I need to become a better person. I've been a shithead. I need to do better. And it seemed like at this moment, Christian was doing so. Now, look, could he be less vague about when Jack asks him questions? Let's say outright, no, I am not with Sarah. I did not sleep with your wife. Maybe. But, sure. it, really, but it really <laughs> did seem like, to your yeah. point, that he's like, he was legitimately working on things. I mean, he says to Jack, look around you and that is is twofold to me and that not only is it literal of a look where you are right now this is not the place to do so but jack has blinders on right now he yeah. is a bull that is looking at that red cape of this mystery suitor and that is sending him into a blind rage and he has stumbled into a china shop that is this aa meeting and he is about to tear everything apart with yeah. christian shepherd and it's it's tough to watch i would argue is this the worst thing Jack ever does in a flashback? Ooh, the worst thing he ever does? Because at least in at least in through the looking glass, like he is not really destructive to anyone around him. He's more so destructive to himself. Well, um, so we're we're not saying just flashback, so we're opening it up to flash anything. Um in through the looking glass, by almost taking his own life, uh he uh causes the car accident that he has to save so that's not great um this is pretty awful this is pretty awful uh it's hard to do like the full scan of jack shepherd's life right now but this one sucks <laughs> this one is, is is really and really painful to watch yeah um and i think back to that question of fire plus water is really unpleasant to watch so so is the jack flashback here why is this an episode that's better regarded by us than fire plus water well i think a lot of the other stuff that's happening in this episode is both pleasurable to watch from like, it's fun, but also like it's mystifying. And it's like, it's, it feels like crafted with um, a, like a conscious effort behind it. Exactly. Like it's mythology building uh, with, with a lot of like deliberate energy behind it. Um, and I would also say that that is again, that we're building towards this point of like finding ourselves in a place where it's really hard to justify the hero of the show. 
it is very hard to justify the hero of the show's behavior at this point in his life to the point that like it's unjustifiable the way that he's mm -hmm. acting and that is positioning us uh to to be uh comfortable to get like bopped in the head with the biggest twist of the entire show um so all all of that is working really well this is just deeply unpleasant to watch yeah. and i would also say that i think in both episodes they try to parallel the attitudes of the characters you know in flashback to the attitudes of the characters on the island and where it works for me with jack that it doesn't for charlie is that i can understand jack's attitude at the point he is right now right he just got kidnapped by the opposition and he is extremely frustrated because he is someone who is deprived of information and felt like he has been truly subdued and subjugated. And Jack Shepard is not the type of person who wants to be below anybody, in a manner of speaking. So I think, while frustrating, the constant chain yanking and the general like uh, resilience he has towards Juliet initially makes so much sense for the for the psychologically psychological standpoint of where he is right now. The Charlie stuff just felt too quickly onset and then too quickly offset to me that he would have just this sudden drop into a really deep low and then to have him suddenly climb out of it very quickly with jack this was something that had been building even to the end of season two right we're like he is so angry at what has happened and what happened under his nose with anna lucia and libby that to find out that he essentially got tricked and is now their prisoner and might be tortured from a certain perspective is actually literally torturing him right now yeah uh, so Juliet's going to come back. Jack's going to uh, bum rush her, break the plate of fruit. And yeah, crazy. he's like, we're, we're for Walter White, even yeah, though that hasn't happened yet. He's pulling the old crazy eight uh, and he's going to try and get her to open a door. She's like, I can't do that. If I open this door, we'll die. Here comes Ben. Ben shows up. Yeah, it's definitely true. And Jack's like, if you say it's true, then it's a lie. So he goes. <laughs> yeah, and he we're tries playing to open the, the opposite door. game. <laughs> yeah, so he tries to open the door, and it's the big uh, rush of water. Yeah, and... but but there's a moment here, right, where he says, you know, I'm gonna kill her if you come one step closer. And Ben says, okay, okay. And it's very much mirroring, like this is a Ben tactic that will get Alex killed. Where Ben's like, I don't believe you, and it's 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 good. It's really interesting pairing this to Kimi where he just has a fundamental misassessment of who Kimi is as a person versus well, who Jack is as a person. A couple of critical differences are, one, he's got the book of Jack, right? Like, he's got yeah. the book of all of the 815ers, uh, which is which is uh, an, an amazing thing. Um, he does not have, like, the full book on Kimi, I don't believe. And even if he has Kimi's dossier, which is possible based on, like, Michael being infiltrated or whatever, if he's got reports on Kimi, um, I buy that that could be the case. Um, he hasn't spent time with him and he has spent time with Jack and he knows Jack. Jack doesn't know Ben in the same way. Um, even if he, you know, knows certain behaviors, he probably knows certain tells at this point. Um, but Ben likewise knows that all about Jack. Uh, he's got the benefit of the book of Jack. He also has the benefit of the, of the week or so he spent in the hatch. He knows that Jack's not going to kill Juliet. Um, does not know that about Martin Kimi. That Martin yeah. Kimi is just going to But the, but the question is, Alex. did Juliet know that? Because again, this is a fun little like emblematic scene of what's going to the larger arc of season three. No, I where... think at this point she really assumes the worst about him, right? Because yeah. in this moment, Ben has already shown Juliet Goodwin's dead body. 
Yep, you know? and it's and it's basically said like this is what will happen if yeah. you uh, if you like choose to disobey me essentially, and yeah. so this is really going to show. Ben's going to be playing games with Juliet, thinking that she can trust him blindingly, and she is going to work together with Jack to take care of the others in a yeah. certain way. In this case, it's more so saving their own lives by shutting the door, and then her just giving him a good old punch to the face to the point where she knocks him out, Saeed style. Yeah, she clocks Jack, uh, knocks him clean out cold, uh, a testament to Juliet's hitting strength, um, and also, I think, to, to the fragility of Jack in this moment. Um, but she knocks him out really, really great. Uh, we go back to the polar bear cages, and uh, great success is happening for one James Sawyer Ford. Let's listen in. Your hands out through the bars. I'll take off your cuffs. Scratched you up pretty bad, didn't they? I'll bring you some antiseptic later. How about you bring me an ottoman? Why you at it? I could use a blow dry. Hey, you got yourself a fish biscuit. How'd you do that? I figured out your complicated gizmos. That's how. Only took the bears two hours. How many of them were there? <laughs> Josh Holloway is so good it's in this great scene. scene. It's so great. I, I love, the music I love kicks it. In and he's, yeah, like and he's conducting yeah. to himself like he's a freaking <laughs> Sousa performer. <laughs> it's so like somebody needs to gift that if they haven't already of Sawyer like pleasantly it's be so like, good. I solved your stupid puzzle. It's so good. Uh, not enough lost gifts out there. We really got to work on that, people. Um, yeah, there's that. There's just the, you know, how about you fetch me an ottoman? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch Sawyer go from, like, just watch him go through this range of emotions in, like, 30 seconds where he is celebratory to despondent with the fish biscuit and the water to legitimately concerned when Kate gets brought in because she is in, like, tears when the cuffs are getting taken off to then going back into the typical Sawyer smart-ass mode when it comes to facing off against Tom Friendly for round, like, 15 at this point. Yeah, no, it's so fun. Uh, this The scene continues, and uh, again, just another great demonstration of, of Josh Holloway's range uh, of, you know, like... I think like really like seamlessly uh, weaving in and out of like the, the gravitas of the situation uh, is where he's, you know, uh, she's asking if he's okay. And he says, Oh, I'm just swell. I requested that cage, but whatever. This, um, uh, this is a, I don't, this, I know I'm, I'm a typical Kate and Sawyer shipper. So I'm a bit biased. This is a really cute scene. It is. In my opinion, I think they have a really great chemistry. I, I love that Sawyer is able to cheer Kate up in that moment, like it seems like she almost smiles when she sees Sawyer. So again, talk, you know, despite the up and down relationship that they've had the past couple of seasons, 
it's sort of like any port in a storm at this point. And Sawyer is doing a good job in at least making Kate feel semi-comfortable in what Ben has described as a very uncomfortable environment. Yeah, so it's it's good. Uh, a really good scene, I think. Uh, and again, like Kate eating the fish biscuit after having just like gone full crazy on a breakfast. Uh, I also, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot there. I wonder what I it tastes about. like. I know a while back someone actually put out like a recipe of how to make fish uh, biscuits. So I don't right. know if, I don't know exactly if it's supposed to be like, obviously they're made for animals, but they're I'm not, not gagging. Sure. They're not gagging, right? They're more like, I can't believe I have to eat a fish biscuit, but it's not like they're eating dog food. Um, but, uh, even if like the, the logic behind it leaves me with a couple of questions, uh, I I love the the symbolism of like we're in this together, right? Yeah. Of like throwing her the biscuit and her catching it, the two hands coming out of the cages. That's shot really well. Um, man, is this a is this a four point two episode? Why no, is it, it is Why not. Is it not. You'll have to help me out because I I really love this episode. Where's, I think, I think the there, are some, there are some fun moments. I would not say to four again, if I were going by the bloom brick, I do not know if right, every cool. single thing is perfect. Great. Walk me through it when we get there. Um, all right. So Jack wakes up and there's like whales. It's like, Whoa, yeah. Whoa. that's what a whale sounds like. Of course. Yeah. What happens yeah. to the Dharma whales? Do they just not have enough in the CGI budget after season two for it? Yeah. Maybe they're just playing it through the intercom to like help him get a little bit closer to the point. Yeah. Or uh, like, or like a <laughs> woman to like a sense of like security. You know, yeah. some people listen to like white noise. To help oh, them I to do. Sleep. Yeah. I, I do personally. Uh, like I oh, can't, yeah, you do. I, I cannot sleep without some sort of white noise right now. It's like sleep music, but often it's like sounds of nature and stuff. Uh, so like this would be very soothing for me. So maybe it is like, Jack, go to sleep. It's here the whales. Jack. And then occasionally hear like let it go, Jack. Yeah. But he he's like, okay, so it's an aquarium. Uh this is where the shark uh used to hang out. Um, this station for the Dharma Initiative was once called the Hydra. Uh, and that leads uh Jack to to asking uh Juliet a, a great question that Juliet has a has a great answer to, and she's also gonna reveal why she seems to know so much about Jack. Let's listen in sound number sevs. So you people are just whatever's left over of them. Well, that was a long time ago. It doesn't matter who we were. It only matters who we are. We know exactly who you are, Jack Shepard. You don't know anything about me. I know that you're a spinal surgeon based out of St. Sebastian's Hospital in Los Angeles. I know that you went to Columbia and you graduated med school a year faster than anyone else. I know that you were married only once and that you contested the divorce. I know your father died in Sydney. I know this because I have a copy of his autopsy report. How did you get? We got it. What is that? This, Jack, is your life. Do you? Is it just about me or is it about my family too, my, my friends? Pretty much about everything. Oh, Scott Burkus. 
Uh, we've got, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's just, he's like scrambling around being like, okay, where's my guy? And where, where'd he go? He, he took that plane and he never came back. I will admit, uh, as someone who, again, has sort of been seeking a lot of mental health perspective over the past few years, the, the quote, it doesn't matter who we were, it only matters who we are, is one of those like lost revisited quotes that has reverberated with me so much more because obviously those of us that do suffer from anxiety know how much we can fall into those pits, like the tiger trap of the tailies when it comes to ruminating over things that have happened. Uh, and this quote, even though it, it's meant to be, again, a bit manipulative and the tabula rasa of it all, it's almost self-affirming if you take it in a more motivational way. And maybe that's Juliet's purpose as well. You know, again, we have sort of have to question her tactics here of, you know, showing the book and essentially telling him, like, we know everything about you because this is a form of torture for Jack. I mentioned it before. They know everything about him. He knows nothing about them. And that drives him up the plastic wall. Uh, and so it, it is a form, I think, of, of sort of like show, showing, you know, the your ammo. But the way that Juliet approaches it is also, again, very like gentle and courteous. We also find out that Jack graduated med school a year faster, probably because he wanted to start those flying lessons ASAP. Yeah, it's also because he was a big Doogie Hauser fan. So he's <laughs> deeply inspired by Doogie's work. Yeah, I can imagine he's like, uh, I want to become, yeah, St. Sebastian, he's walking like, no, please call me, don't call me Dr. Shepard, call me Dr. Doogie, because he wants to separate Doogie himself Shepherd. from his dad. Doogie Sheps. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a a really uh, great scene. The idea of the book that they've got, it's pretty much everything is really good. And I, and I love the sentiment, certainly, at least, if, if not maybe the semantics of it doesn't matter who we were, it only matters who we are, I think speaks a lot to to um to what lost is trying to sell us and we get like kind of um a flip of that right in in uh once we go to the flashback once yeah. jack wants to know more about do you know about my ex-wife what's going on with her and she says yeah i got stuff on her what do you want to know and we go to the flashback and it's sarah busting jack out of jail which again frames really nicely with through the looking glass when she's his emergency contact there um but when uh, he chases her out onto the street and sees a man that Sarah is with, he's got questions and she's got a very serious answer in the form of one of the most legendary lost clapbacks ever. Sarah. What? Is that him? What difference does it make? It just does. It's not going to change Look, anything. I want to know. Need to know who he is. It doesn't matter who he is. It just matters who you're not. Oh. <laughs> you just got Sarah. Oh my god! And speaking of uh, Julie Bowen's performance, she does a great thing here when she's walking out, and you know Jack confronts her. Where like she shows a surprising amount of emotion on her face. I think for someone who has been sort of like at the end of her rope, very frustrated with him this entire episode, to have her actually show that in this moment i think also shows that like this is when she wants to say goodbye to him finally that she wants this to be like the last thing and this also has to be like a really tough situation right where despite being so having her life potentially destroyed by this guy currently she's like bailing him out uh she's consistently showing bailing up in, yeah showing up in his life and that has to be like a really weird and tough situation to to negotiate Here's my question for you, Josh, because I know that we love to do the fan fiction here, but would you prefer that the mystery suitor be someone we know 
or for it to just be a random no name person. Yeah, I think it's good this way. I think it doesn't matter. And and like to get like get hung up on the Sarah of it all any further than what it's supposed to to do is like this is Sarah is left for Jack as a a a, a blot in his history, like a failure in his life, a personal failing on his part that he couldn't fix. And I, and I do think that that's where I like take some issue with the idea of like, it doesn't matter who you were. It only matters who, who you are, who you were is why you are who you are. So who you were definitely matters. And, and yeah, who is, you, who you came with directly influences who, who you're, you're leaving with. with. And, and I, and I think that it, it, it matters very much that Jack screwed up. Uh, and it's like a, a preliminary screw up that he he doesn't learn anything from, you know, he didn't learn anything from it. He didn't he didn't grow from it, I don't think. Um, and he makes mistakes that are on a much grander, more explosive in the term in the in the case of the freighter uh, scale when mm -hmm. he leaves the island and doesn't believe in John Locke and John Locke dies. And, um, you know, he he shoulders some blame for that. Um, so I, I think like if you make Sarah's new, uh, you know, love interest, someone that we know, and then we're going, we're revisiting that. I think you're, you're losing a bit of the nuance of the Jack arc. Mm. I think, it, I think for me in, in reading Jack, a helpful piece of like feeling, um, like satisfied by the journey of this guy who screws up a bunch. Who's like, I can never fail. I can never fail, but he does fail and he doesn't learn from the failure. This is one of those failures he doesn't learn from. And then he fails again and he learns from it. Um, I don't think that that piece is as satisfying if he doesn't screw up the Sarah situation and just like totally screws it up. And if suddenly Sarah is like connected to uh, the peach man, Ray Mullen, <laughs> you know, like it's just now, it's now like another piece of convoluted lost mythology. So to yeah. leave this one open, uh, I, I much prefer it this way. Yeah, exactly. I think in making it someone that we know, it that partially becomes what it's about, right? Instead of what it represents. Like I would say as interesting as the Christian Shepherd Claire connection is, I think having that information be revealed sort of obscures part of the Claire character, the character, uh, because it then becomes more about that and the connections between her and Jack and less so about who she is as a person and how that situation sort of informs her personality. And I also like it because then it doesn't, it, it's even more of a burn on Jack, right? That it, it's not like, Oh, this is somebody, you know, so you can directly mimic off of if you are indeed looking for someone to fill in that part of your personality that you feel like you are lacking. This is some nobody like this just shows that any path you're going down right now is a dead end. Like, this is not someone that you know, so you are completely digging up a dry well by trying to pursue this right now. And I know you pulled that that burn uh, from Sarah. I would even say an equal, if not bigger burn, is look on the bright side. Now you have something to fix. Yeah, because uh, you got your dad off the wagon. You got to fix that up. Because um, that's also picking at a big thing yes. about Jack, right? Is that he will he will even break things to fix them because that's what he feels like he needs to do as his purpose in life. Yeah. Uh, and like, you know, he, he bought this, he's got to pay for it. Right. Like this is, this is, you know, his behavior has led to both the disintegration of his marriage, but also this, um, this very tangible damage that's, uh, that's happened with his, with his father. Like sure. At the end of the day, like Christian chose to drink again, um, but he was on the path and then Jack's, you know, implosion uh caused that damage as well so he's got to live with that and i think that this 
these two things are not unlinked, right? Like mm -hmm. um, what goes down with Christian eventually, um, you know, you, you could probably connect to this, that like maybe he was trying to clean himself up uh, and was getting there. Uh, who knows how close he was, uh, you know, 50 days deep at least. And um, Jack does this and Christian falls off and their relationship repairs enough to the level that they're able to work together. Net Christian is going to have the level of faith in his son that he's not going to narc him out, but he does. So all of this is connected, right? Like that is, that is lost. It's like um, whatever happened, happened. Sure. But whatever happened made this happen too. Um, you know, it's the sort of unspoken piece of it. The thing that, that happens at the end of the episode or, or right before the very end of the episode is when we come out of the flashback and the thing that Jack wants to know about Sarah is he finally asks the right question, right? He right. asks, is he happy? And yes, she is. And that's what breaks Jack ultimately. And I think maybe one of the things that he's thinking about in that moment is, is it better off for everybody that I'm here on this island? Yeah. Are people better off without me in their life? Uh, and that's, that's a pretty rough blow. So I, I feel for him in, in, in that moment. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the Sawyer thing, right? Of like, there's nobody on this island waiting for you. Yeah, uh, and I think he also like like you said, I think why through the Looking Glass works really well as a flash forward episode is because he's mimicking a lot of actions here. But I do wonder if this is like a slow moment of growth, right? Because this is Juliet has the book. Uh, he could ask her who is the guy that she was seeing. Who knows? Hell, they might have that information. But it seems like he actually may have learned from that talk with Sarah yeah. and decides to instead ask about how she's feeling. Again, it's going to be one step forward and two steps back once he gets off the island. But really interesting, not only Matthew Fox, you know, breaking here, but then him subsequently, silently and almost weakly walking to the wall and sitting with his back to it. Like, it feels like he's been conditioned here. So it's this weird sort of double feeling of Jack is getting closure and he's getting you know, he, he, I think he feels some sort of satisfaction with that question, but now also that means that he's more compliable. And that's, as we're going to talk about with the last scene, that's what they want him to be. Yeah. The last scene, Juliet leaves after Jack has succumbed and Ben's like, good work, Juliet. And she's like, thanks, Ben. Ooh, yeah. Big reveal. This, yeah. This is sort of like a womp womp ending <laughs> yeah. in retrospect. Cause like, that's the only thing. And I remember leading up to this season, the big news item was we finally get to find out what Henry Gale's name was. So since we know it, and literally the ending is just those two lines and then just closing in on Ben, very creepily staring off into nothing is sort of like, okay, fine. You know, I guess this is what we're doing for the next little while. Look, you know, my my life is defined by Ben's. Uh, my brother is named Ben. My best friend since I was two years old, the creator of the Wiggler's Wombats hat is named Ben. Uh, there are, you know, the road is, is paved with like, 50 more bends <laughs> the road is paved with bends it really is there's so many bends around the bends and i'm not the car company uh so it's only fitting that lost included uh, a character named ben of magnificent importance and of course that down the hatch is really only uh was only made possible by the encouragement and mm. the the continued support of the great Ben behind the curtain who decurtained for the lost book club, which you should definitely listen to if you haven't. Uh, ben was fantastic on that. In addition to Jonathan Krauss. Uh, so I, I always did love that, uh, uh, that, that they called him Ben. Um, you know, it just, it felt like more of that kismet stuff for me of like, Ooh, this is my show. This show is my show for sure. 
Yeah, it, it makes sense, right? It's a name that sort of like the the Tom, right? To Lost, and that's a name that has recurred throughout. Well, Tom your life. is for Lost is what Ben is for my life. Yeah, there's just like a a nonstop barrage of Bens, a very very meaningful, crucial, critical, important Bens in my life. Would you uh, call this ending a Ben bomb? Perhaps it's a little bit of a Ben bomb, a little bit of a Ben bomb. Uh, uh, but ben, but Ben but Ben will not church this up in the in the finale. Unfortunately, no, no, no. <laughs> he's just gonna miss the opportunity to church it up. All right, let's get into the others. The feedback section that is curated by the aforementioned Ben behind the curtain. Uh, and let's start here. Uh, I guess so. Amelia, the woman who comes mm-hmm. to Juliet's house in the beginning of the episode, is widely theorized to be Amelia Earhart. Um, <laughs> what? All right. So hear this out. So. There is a Hararat Airways uh, that shows up later in the season in One of Us, and mm-hmm. it's an anagram for Earhart. Um, uh, photos of the actress compared to Amelia Earhart, they bear some resemblance. <laughs> um, but time travel would have to have been involved, otherwise she'd be 107 years old. Uh, one year off from being the lucky number. Um, Unless she got some of what Richard Albert got. Yeah, could be, could be, could be. Um, uh Damon Lindelof, when he announced his movie Tomorrowland at Comic-Con, he had a box full of photos, including one of Earhart meeting Walt Disney in 1945, eight years after her disappearance. Um, Is that a nod to Amelia Earhart being on Lost? And Mike, could it be a nod to Walt Disney being the the basis for Walt Lloyd, the the human? I'll take it. Thank you, (laughs) Mr. Lindelof. Wow, this is bananas. That's but this is this is these are some sweet bananas. I just, I'm not, this, I'm like, not yeah. allowed to, to poo-poo it uh with my yeah, time but, traveling Dave marrying Libby. I have I just, to sign on. I just love this idea that it's like, <laughs> of course, uh join our book club, Amelia Earhart. Yeah. Perhaps the Lindbergh baby will also come. So that's part of a deleted scene was the um expansion of Amelia as a character. We'll get to that when we get to the missing pieces stuff. Um, many, many moons from now. Um, some other deleted scenes, at least two scenes with a young girl were cut from the show. Uh, there's an official deleted scene. It's still available when Jack is watching Sarah from afar at a school. He ends up rushing to the playground to save this girl from choking. Um, there are also multiple pictures of her on Hydra Island. Whoa. Uh, so I don't know what they were planning on could, doing could, there. I mean, could be a smoky thing. Could just be like a, hey, here's we, we lost Walt. So here's another creepy kid that will hopefully not go through puberty. Yeah. So I also know um, that uh, uh, that there was something with Sawyer calling out Carl. I remember that very vividly, unless I'm mm-hmm. Mandelaing that. Uh, which is which is not impossible. I mean, listen, Sawyer also did know that Danielle Rousseau set up the smoke when he was not there. So maybe he just has like a yeah. way to see the island that we have Spot no idea. Yeah, he does have some clairvoyance that we're not aware of. Um, how about this? this is about MC Ganey, who appeared on The Hatch, a lost podcast with Sammy and Rosie, uh, the great Sammy and Rosie of The Hatch, um, that this was his uh, his his uh, memory of uh of playing tom friendly in the beginning of season three mc ganey uh this is his quote the only decision i ever actually got to make was that i was gay i had a scene at the beginning of season three when i'm trying to get kate to take a shower and i say you're not my type and as i'm reading that i'm thinking she's one of the greatest women in the world she's so beautiful and such a fun person to work with if she's not your type then sawyer must be by that point i decided i was never going to offer any thoughts on anything because nobody really wanted that Uh, So I just decided for myself, whenever I was having a scene with Matthew, I was thinking how cute he was, but there was no chance to manifest it in any form. Much later at a party for the presentation of Emmy nomination certifications to the writers, they asked if I would come in and present the certificate. So I did. And while I was there, 
They asked me a question about an acting choice I had made, and I said, well, Tom's gay. And two weeks later, I had a script with my boyfriend back in New York. For me, that was like winning an award for myself that I actually got to influence the character. I carried a secret that somebody on this island's got to be gay because someone in every group is gay. It made it fun for me to have a secret that they didn't know. That's the end of the quote. As John Krause points out, um, having a somewhat prominent character be gay on network TV was still very uncommon at the time of loss. Less than 15 years ago, this was considered good representation. Yeah, I mean, we have come a far way. We still have a long way to go. But it was, I, I do think it's very interesting that, you know, MC Ganey talks about the process, but that outside of that scene with his boyfriend, like, he's not defined by being a gay character. And that does feel like a step forward, right? That he's not like a Jack from Will and Grace and that that is all the components of his character are. I love the line, if she's not your type, then Sawyer must be. Because now it makes me want to come up with the headcanon that Tom Friendly has a crush on Sawyer. And that's why he keeps sort of like negging him along. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. That's fun. I like that. Um, okay, let's get into some feedback from folks. Uh, Lindy Steiner writes in and asks, would you want Ben in your book club? Mike, considering that Ben seems to be a huge Stephen King guy, yeah, I do. I do want him in my book club. Well, apparently he said, though, that Carrie was depressing. So maybe he's only for selective Stephen well, King Stephen books. Well, Stephen King is so uh, versatile as an author, you know, dabbling in many a genre and different types of story that maybe I think certain books he doesn't care for. The thing with Ben, and Juliet sort of alludes to this with the free will quote, is that he does feel like the type of guy that would be like, no, no, the host will decide who chooses the next book. And it's like, yeah, I'm thinking about Carrie. He's like, mm, I don't know about that. So it does feel like he'd be like a bit of a backseat driver mm -hmm. when it comes to choosing things. The quote about, I guess I'm no longer in the book club. It, do you think that's a, a reference to him knowing that he like is in the doghouse with Juliet for yeah, sending everyone so, off? Right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, maybe not for that. I mean, I think that at this point they've already had uh, some awkward, uh, some awkward moments. I, I I'm blanking on exactly what the timeline is. I, I, either that or there's just a very strict attendance policy for this book club. <laughs> where if you miss one, you're out. Yeah, and you don't even get a a, a memo uh, letting you know that you've been let go from the book club. You have to guess. <laughs> um, the great Brent the Shower Man, who is now all caught up on Down the Hatch. So hey, congratulations, Brent. Congratulations, Brent. Welcome aboard. Um, is it just me or was Juliet's manipulation in this episode really, really good? Yeah. Yeah. It's not just you. <laughs> We're very much on board with that as well. I think uh, this is just such an excellent episode for Juliet. And, uh, you know, really a, a slam dunk for Juliet as far as I'm concerned. Just to no. shut out uh, a, a very decisive, this is the best character of the episode, episode for Juliet. Yeah, yeah. and she uh, is able to get what she wants. She's able to not necessarily get Jack to immediately agree to this favor, but get him in a position where he is very pliable and will eventually be playing football with Tom Friendly down the line. And so she's able to run into a, a, a runaway Sawyer to shock him. Like, this yeah. is just a fantastic episode for her overall. Uh, Eric Divestein asks... Is Sarah very happy now because she thinks Jack is dead? Is that the reason why Sarah is very happy, according to the dossier, Mike? Oh, boy, yeah. She's very happy, <laughs> dot, 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 because she thinks her ex-husband is oh, dead now. Oh, ruthless, ruthless, ruthless. Uh, from Matt Overby, what do you think is the deal with Jack's weird intercom? Is this the man in black at work? We're just Ben trolling Jack. Um, I think it's either it's the dehydration and the hallucination, uh, the hallucinating, or it's the man in black. I don't, I don't really know what it could be other than that. I, I like to again. I know that we have the meme of is this the smoke monster, but I like this idea because I like this runner of like, if the man in black's mission is to screw with the candidates so much that they fall out of candidacy in a manner of speaking, that like this is a way to do so, mm -hmm. and this is also you know. 
obviously the others have some sort of odd on uh, on again off again relationship with the smoke monster this could be a way to sort of cooperate with that in terms of putting jack in a more vulnerable place while also getting what it wants and that putting this guy in a really bad place psychologically yeah all right uh let's get into uh oh before we do any music analysis from the great jim fells that you want to bring to the oh i got a lot and it's not just that french horn which again is a really fun call out uh so as everyone is gathering outside in that opening scene that we heard about uh the theme the theme that plays is actually that others hillbilly music so it's sort of got transformed from like ooh the big spooky others to okay we're finding out more about this group but while ben is putting everyone into action we get a new theme that is going to be used in over half the episodes this season so like there is a very stark musical mention this episode of the others are here they're here to stay and we have something to represent that from the jack perspective he gets a new motif that represents his stubbornness when he uh tails christian to aa we're going to hear it again in Through the Looking Glass uh, when he really is at the end of his rope. And it also, I think not coincidentally, sounds a lot like Sawyer's theme, uh, since those are both sort of characteristics that these characters show. But finally, Jim Fells points out that Jack becomes the final main character to get an outright theme dedicated to him. We hear it during that Book of Jack scene as she is, is reading through his file the thing about it is that it has a surprising softness and gentleness to it, which maybe informs uh, the the like sort of his underlying characteristics, less so about maybe the harshness that he exudes as a leader. But we hear it during some very seminal moments with the character. We hear it during We Have to Go Back, the final scene of Through the Looking Glass. We hear it at the end of the show, right? Yeah, we hear it when he watches up on the rocks at the end, all bloodied up. And we also hear it uh, in Lighthouse when he finds the the mirror that goes into his childhood home. And so this is a, a theme that is going to carry out throughout Jack's quite literal life. And so it, it's a big to-do. Now Jack has finally been welcomed in. But yeah, there's a lot of really great stuff in Jim Fell's video. It's a big one over 20 minutes. Uh, and cool. so this, I mean, this premiere brings in a lot of new stuff, new characters and new musical pieces as well. Yeah, I, I like that softness because I think... Um jack carries his baggage from being a kid so deeply uh everyone. yeah like he doesn't want anyone to know that right like i'm big tough jack you know you, uh what happened to me when i was a kid and the fact that my daddy didn't love me the way that i wanted him to uh that's not the thing that is totally defining my my existence no way no how um and like all of those wounds from when he was a kid uh are the things that he, he has sustained throughout his life so um i think that the way that that connects to uh you know i think this idea of like you get older but you don't really grow up you know necessarily yeah. like a lot of that stuff just does follow you i think for that being in his uh in his music is 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 really really nice um mvp lvps mike fresh start to boom wow. as we are entering season three with a clean slate and i think a pretty clear leader from the jump um, I only have two MVPs this week. You've got three and I'm going to throw both of my MVP points behind Juliet Burke. Yeah. And I'll add, I'll add one on there as well. I was thinking about adding two, but there are two other characters I want to highlight here. I mean, incredible episode. I think it, this is going to, I mean, I think I'll, I'll say right now, I think there's a good chance she's going to be the season three MVP. It's early uh, days. It's very early. 
I don't know. I'm 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 putting my stick in the ground well, here. And I'm- I I think that there's you know I I kind of thought that maybe she was going to be uh, sweeping this episode, and I think that that would have been her best shot if she launched in with with uh, five MVPs behind her. But I know that there are a couple of characters in here who who have really strong episodes. I just think Juliet shows up like a meteor, you know, yeah. like she just hits the island with such impact and um, is like shows up here and this is a character we have not even talked about a lot on down the hatch for a year of doing this podcast Mm -hmm. and it feels like she's been here the entire time yeah she has like elizabeth mitchell does a fantastic job of just showing all the nuances of this character in 42 minutes that is absolutely crazy to me and the fact that from a character perspective again she was able to get what she wanted out of Jack and she was able to do it in a very effective way like she had all the power all the status the entire time absolutely magnificent performance and from both the character and the actress perspective. But I did want to throw a couple of other points people's ways. I did want to throw a point to Christian Shepard because there are very rare times that we give Christian Shepard any kudos. And I think you and I both look upon his plight this episode sympathetically. Yes, for sure. So I think he does deserve some acknowledgement there. And I'm going to throw one on to Sawyer because hey. I just I just think Josh Holloway has a really fun time in this episode. And in my opinion, he is one of the highlights of this episode. Yeah, to- totally agreed. And as we turn to the LVP, fascinating that Christian's getting a point. And I think in, in a rare move, like Jack's getting dunked on a bit because flashback Jack is a really bad guy in this yeah. episode. So I've got three LVPs. Uh, I'm going to give one to Carl because Carl sucks. And I just have to give one to Carl. How do you not know that you're on Hydra Island, buddy? Uh, so and, Carl, also, and also he fails in yeah. his in his uh, escape attempt. You know, A for effort, I would say, if you were uh, free for more than five minutes. Um, uh, but I'm going to give the other two to Jack uh, for all of the reasons we've outlined. Doesn't, uh, you know, not a reflection of my enjoyment of him as a character. I think this is all important stuff. But like facts are facts. This is bad, bad stuff, Jack Shepard. Yeah, and I'll say, again, something similar to that, that I think Julie Bowen does yet another great job. I'm personally going to throw a point onto Sarah. I know that you said that she has, you know, she has some defensible things that she does in this episode, but I don't know. I I feel like there could have been a way to approach the situation differently and in a healthier way. So I'm going to throw one her way, just to also reflect on the fact that she also did cheat on her husband uh, for a good portion of time. So Juliet is our season three leader so far. Three points to Juliet, uh, one point to Sawyer, one point to Christian. We've got a negative one to Carl, a negative one to Sarah, and Jack is our LVP frontrunner. He's got a little bit of a hole. He's going to have to dig himself oh, out look, of. Look at this mirror going on. Plus three to Juliet, minus three to Jack. Negative three to Jack, which, uh, which uh, in the Grand Hall, uh, not that we're going to be tracking this all the way down the line, um, but Jack, who I believe was uh, either tied with Hurley or just above Hurley in the overall uh, rankings, is now in the five spot. Saeed wow. at the top, then Echo, then Hurley, then Kate, then Jack right now. So that is what's been impacted the most greatly here with the MVP LVPs. Yeah, uh, which will be interesting. Again, this is as, as much as my, we might be talking about like, well, this was an interesting episode for Jack. His actions show, again, understandably why people maybe rate this episode lower 
and it reflects in the points as he does get knocked down a few here. And I'm, he gets knocked below Kate, who I would have given a sympathy MVP point to, uh, but A, I wanted to highlight other characters, and B, you do bring up a good point with her she hoarding fish, fish biscuits. biscuits. Why are you doing that? All right, let's get into the 4.2 stars. We only got the one episode to rank right now. We'll integrate our Season 3 episode rankings with the full series rankings at the end of Season 3, but we'll just do them one by one along the way here. So A Tale of Two Cities is currently the best episode of Season 3. Woo! No matter, no matter how it rates with, with <laughs> us or the audience. I mean, listen, I don't think it's going to be a, a bold assumption to make that this is probably going to be the best rated episode out of the first six. Um, Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Um, I have it at a four. A four. Uh, I put it at a four. I know I said 4.2 earlier. I will want you to like talk me out of yanking that chain, but I put it at a four because I had the hunting party at a 3.9. And I think that this is a notably better episode than that for me. Um, the hunting party has some really great stuff in it for sure. Um, but I think that like the mythology building that occurs here in a tale of two cities. And I think that the character building stuff, I think that this is an essential Jack Shepard episode. Um, as far as like, you know, I, I've said like which episodes I think are like the essential lost episodes. If you're just trying to do a fast binge, I do think I would exclude this. But if you're looking at the the totality of Lost, I think the things that are accomplished with Jack in this episode are essential. And it is such a, a thunderous uh, debut for Juliet Burke um, with some really funny stuff with the polar bear cages and the fish biscuits and a really great scene with Ben and Kate. Um, I I am trying to figure out why I have it just at a at a four. Coming into the discussion, I was like, am I too high on this one? And now I feel like I'm at the very least at, at a place that I'm really comfortable with. Yeah. But I am a little bit tempted to go higher. So so talk me down. Well, I think for me, uh, the perfect episodes of Lost make me feel something. And what I will say is as good as Matthew Fox's and Elizabeth Mitchell's performances were in this episode, it reminds me a bit of orientation to me and that there's a lot of really good stuff, but there wasn't anything from a subjective perspective that made my heart, you know, rend in a way like it does with other episodes. I ended up giving this a 3.9. So not too far from you whatsoever. I put this sort of on the same level to me as like the long con, which I know you gave a 4.1 in terms of being a, surprisingly sound episode uh going to my rubric this makes it an awesome episode of lost that has one or two major things that are meh or weak for me i i still don't know how i feel it feels just feels weird to me i love when lost is an ensemble show and so it does feel strange to me to not have nearly any of the main ensemble there save three characters it makes for a, a more compact story but it it feels like a different episode of lost to me from that perspective well i do like uh, the, the different tones represented in the episode. There is a bit of tonal whiplash that kind of makes for a weird taste. And I feel like the ending is okay, uh, yeah. especially again in retrospect. So all those things for me like combine enough to not make it like a 4.2, but still a very, very solid episode of Lost. And I think that, Josh, you and I are skewing on the higher scale of what our listeners say about the episode. Yeah, so the listeners have it at a 3.6. Um what's the what's the spread looking at the at the sheet? So the highest was the uh, aforementioned Brent the shower man who gave it a 4.2. Otherwise I'm seeing a lot of 4s and 3.9s, but I also do see uh, a couple of 3s. I see a 2.3 and a 2.6 from people and they when in setting in the ratings they did give a lot of comments about how, you know, they felt like the Jack flashbacks were very unpleasant. They felt like outside of a tremendous first scene, there are things that didn't really happen. And if you say that about that, oh boy, we got something for you next week then. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so next week, the Glass Ballerina, 
the Sun Quan has uh, has uh, some secrets that she's keeping yes. from Jin. R.I.P. to Jay Lee, the most evil man in the world. R.I.P. to Colleen. Colleen. Yes. Uh, well, not R.I.P., but like basically R.I.P. to Colleen. Um, feels like we're going to be coming up on an episode that is hard to imagine. It's not going to be a clean sweep Saeed MVP fest. I just don't know who else is in contention off the top of my head. Yeah, because I know that we... Again, sort of like the first three episodes of season two, despite this sort of being like, okay, let's see what's happening on the Elizabeth. We are going to go back to, uh, we're going to go back to the Hydra Island. And I think Kate and Sawyer get put to work. I remember this episode, maybe the best part might be the ending, which is memorably Ben showing Jack the Boston Red Sox winning the World Series. I'm sure we'll be able to dote on that as well as a bunch of other stuff that does or does not happen over the course of this episode. All right. So we are going to have that in your podcast feed on July 31st. Get your feedback in for the glass ballerina by July 27th at down the hatch at post show recaps.com. You can also tweet at us at round Howard at a Mike bloom type at post show recaps. Uh, look into your show notes. We will have uh, all of the information about the scheduling for the next few weeks so that you know when to get your feedback in for the next few episodes of the podcast. We appreciate you dealing with a little bit of a weird schedule. Hopefully, it's really us making a mountain out of a molehill, and you are not going to feel any of the strangeness. Hopefully, it's just going to run really smoothly. You get a bonus podcast out of it. Yeah. Hopefully, everyone's going to be happy. Um, all right. Uh, Glass Ballerina, coming next. Unbelievable. Here we are. Oh, Mike, uh, can you play that lovely version of Downtown as we end the podcast this week? Absolutely. We won't see you for another episode, but Desmond, sing us out, and we'll we'll see you next time for the Glass Ballerina. When you're alone, that life is getting you lonely. You can always go. Ach, tune, tune.